Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. It seemed like the Murdoch family had just about everything that anyone could want. Alex Murdoch and his wife and their two sons, all in great health. They lived luxurious lifestyles, the upper 1% of all household income kind of lifestyles. They sure seemed to enjoy the prestige that came with their family name. For almost a full century, the Murdoch family patriarchs had served as prosecutors in the low country of South Carolina. In several South Carolina counties, the Murdoch name carried a lot of weight. Wealth, power, respect, they had it all. They were the law and were above the law. If there was one family in South Carolina's low country you did not want to cross, it was the Murdochs. Long before Alec Murdoch became an internationally known infamous figure, it was said that the family controlled the local police and could get away with anything, even murder. It was believed by many that if you became a, a problem for the Murdochs, you might just get taken care of. As a descendant of this prominent family, Alec Murdoch grew up witnessing his father and grandfather's influence both in the courtroom and in local society. And then, as an adult, he would possess much of the same influence. Like his predecessors, Alec became a very successful civil attorney, the biggest law name in the area by leaps and bounds. He worked at his family's historic law firm and also volunteered part-time as a solicitor, continuing the Murdoch legacy of being the prosecutor for several counties that went back a century. Before he was taken down, Alex seemed just as untouchable as his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had seen before him. And thanks to a lot of accumulated family wealth, he was the most affluent and thus likely the most powerful Murdoch yet. Alec, however, may have also had more skeletons in his closet than any Murdoch patriarch before him. Too many to keep them all hidden. They were starting to spill out. Alec had been struggling with an opioid addiction for around 20 years, and his addiction seems to have greatly enhanced his natural arrogance. He'd convinced himself that he could get away with anything. And for years, he had gotten away with so much. But with every serious financial crime he committed and tried to hide or sweep under the rug, he increased the odds that someone would find a loose string. And now, if they tugged hard enough on it, it would unravel and reveal so many more crimes than the ones whoever had tugged upon it were looking for. 
Suspicion had been grown for years that he was abusing his legal power in ways more and more locals just were not willing to tolerate any longer. He'd been stealing money from the clients he represented in court, millions of dollars worth of settlements and insurance payouts that instead of giving this to his clients, he was redirecting the cash into his accounts without his client's knowledge. This dude was the ultimate slimeball attorney, the kind of lawyer that gives the whole profession a bad name. And finally, all his crimes would come crashing down upon him and play out like a twisted soap opera or a movie. Some real, the truth is stranger than fiction shit. This week, we will summarize the history of the previously long, powerful Murdoch family, a deadly boat crash that became the string to be tugged upon that would lead to the prominent families unraveling some other mysterious deaths associated with the Murdochs that may result in even additional charges going forward. The murders of Paul and Maggie Murdoch Alex's insanely brazen and morally bankrupt financial crimes and his infamous trial on another murder mystery, We Meet Sex, are easily the most complex and fascinating of all the world's creatures edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, or happy Thursday, Space Lizards. You get it. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, used women's bicycle repairman, guy who finally straightened out his boner. Thank you, Anvil. Yuri Shapiro Goldberg's top Goyim cattle wrangler, and you are listening to Time Suck. <laughs> and I know that apparently my Yiddish accent is shit. <laughs> From some early feedback I've already gotten. I was I was trying to base it on like Mel Brooks or something. I don't know. Uh, hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, glory be to John Bon Jovi, I mean Triple M. Apologies, Michael motherfucking McDonald. Uh, thank you for the recent ratings and or reviews. Those five stars have been helping. Hope some of you uh, are here after finding Time Suck thanks to some recent clips going viral on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you, Charles Ramsey. Uh, stick around, check out the catalog. Uh, one quick Bad Magic Giving Tree mention, and then we're off into Storyland. December is here, and so is your last chance to contribute to the Bad Magic Giving Tree, where our community does their best to give some meat sack family children a holiday their parent, parents, or guardian or guardians otherwise could not afford. As is our tradition here at Bad Magic, Lindsay and I are hosting the Bad Magic Giving Tree for both Scared to Death and Time Suck. If you've been keeping up, you already know that signups happened a few weeks ago, but we are still collecting additional support for this community project. If you're able to help build up the fund for the Giving Tree, you can go to Amazon.com and purchase a gift card that will be matched dollar for dollar up to 13 k by Lindsay and I to help 30 families this holiday season. And that's on top of donating the 20% of this month's Patreon to the Giving Tree. Giving Tree Fund still open. will remain open for about another week until mid-December. If you purchase a gift card, the important thing you need to know is where to send it. Enter Giving Tree 2023 at BadMagicProductions.com as the recipient address. And then St. Joan, behind the scenes, will uh, appropriate the funds correctly. Uh, and thank you. I don't know if I use the word appropriate correctly there, but she'll she'll manage the funds. She'll get them where they need to be. And thank you to the Space Lizards on Patreon for reading the call to action post a week ago on Patreon and donating. You're making somebody's holiday so special, Nimrod and Lucifina, so pleased. And now let's go meet uh, one of America's nicest, most wholesome families. Probably more wholesome than the Cleavers from Leave it to Beaver. Uh, might be more wholesome than the Ingles from Little House on the Prairie. Maybe not quite as wholesome as Jim Bob Duggar, but close. Let's get to know the Murdochs. Gonna kick shit off today by introducing the Murdoch family and their influence over the low country of South Carolina. 
followed by a full timeline of the life and crimes associated with Alec Murdoch, and a quick heads up on a few pronunciations. It appears that collectively, the people of South Carolina's low country struggle even more with basic proper pronunciations than I do. Uh, I don't know what they're fucking doing down there. <laughs> but Alex, A-L-E-X-X, consistently pronounced as Alec, as in Alec Baldwin or Alec Trebek. Also, Murdaugh, M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H, is pronounced consistently like Murdoch with a K, like the dude from the A-team. Uh, Lindsay didn't believe me when I first told her this stuff. But then we watched a docuseries on all this on Max, Low Country, the Murdoch di- Dynasty. Uh, one of several series collectively watched by either myself or the initial researcher this week, Olivia Lee. And she was like, why do they keep adding a K to everything? I have no fucking clue. <laughs> uh, big on ignoring any sense of phonetic pronunciation in the Low Country. Also big on nicknames. A lot of nicknames. So if I get some pronunciations wrong about uh, shit down in Hampton County, South Carolina, I am blaming the people of Hampton County. For just fucking winging it when it comes to how they choose to say shit. Which I will say I respect. I clearly have done the same thing for most of my life. Uh, All right, let's meet these hard, consonant sound loving motherfuckers and uh, learn a bit about life in the low country before we run through Alex's life from birth to the present and all the mess he has made of everything. Uh, According to, I know this story has been out for a a while now and followed by a lot of people. Uh, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it before this week. I found it fascinating. I get it. I get the hype. Uh, according to numerous outlets and docuseries, Alec Murdoch was a member of one of South Carolina's most prominent legal dynasties. The Murdoch family has a long and powerful history in South Carolina. Alec's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather all served as state prosecutors for, or solicitors as they call it there for many, many years. Uh, the Murdoch served as solicitors of South Carolina's 14th Judicial Circuit outside of just a few months, continuously from 1920 to 2006. Locals for years had called the 14th Circuit Murdoch Country. And then from 2006 to 2021, Alec Murdoch would be a volunteer solicitor, which somehow still gave him a badge, special privileges with law enforcement, even had a blue police light in his vehicle. Uh, Why wasn't he a proper solicitor? There's different opinions on that. Some sources say he didn't want to take away too much time from uh, more lucrative work representing clients in personal injury litigation cases. Other sources say he wasn't much of a lawyer and wasn't up for the job that his dad, granddad, and great-grandpa were able to pull off. A lot of colleagues, when he, uh, you know, his life would later come crumbling down, would speak uh, pretty openly about how the only reason he was a prominent attorney in the area was because of his last name. And he was ruthless and unscrupulous. When it came to actually being a student of the law, uh, it doesn't seem like his peers saw much in him. The solicitor is an elected position in South Carolina equivalent to a county district attorney, but they preside over numerous counties. There's 46 counties in South Carolina, only 16 judicial circuits with a solicitor, you know, appointed to each one. And the 14th circuit consists of Allendale, uh, Callaton, Hampton, Beaufort, and Jasper counties, which are in the lower portion of the state called the Low Country. Let's now meet the three generations of Murdoch men that came before Alex. Randolph Murdoch Sr., is the man who began the legal legacy, uh, born in 1881 in Varnville, South Carolina, located in Hampton County. Varnville touches Hampton, they're twin towns. Uh, Varnville had 2,162 people as of the last census, census, and Hampton had 2,802 people. So you got a little town collectively about 5,000 people in a county that only has around 19,000 people. The 24th Circuit, all five counties, comprise a total population of 281,112, so a rural area for sure, 
and Hampton County and Allendale bordering to the north collectively have less than 30,000 people between them. The Murdochs have lived for over a century in the least populated area of a very rural district. The heart of South Carolina's low country, an area somewhat loosely defined as being between the Savannah River and the Atlantic Ocean, full of salt water and marshlands, thick with cordgrass, live oaks, and Spanish moss, sweet grass, baskets, she crab, soup, and shrimp, and grits, and all kinds of seafood deliciousness over rice, raised houses, with deep porches, and tall shuttered windows, pluff mud and palmettos, and poverty. Lots and lots of real poverty. Hampton and Allendale counties are some of the poorest counties in the state, and the state is the 10th poorest state in the nation. More than 35% of Allendale County residents, the state's poorest county, and 23% of Hampton County residents live below the poverty line. And it seems like uh, most of the rest of them live just slightly above it. Uh, That line is currently $14,580 a year for an individual, $19,720 a year for a couple, and $30,000 a year for a family of four. In a place like this, if you're making over a million dollars a year and are sitting on decades of accumulated family wealth like the Murdochs, you're like a fucking feudal lord, right? Living around your peasants. The OG Murdoch solicitor, Randolph Murdoch Sr., born into money, just like Alec, he didn't actually build the family fortune. His father, Josiah Putnam Murdoch, was a wealthy businessman. Josiah Putnam Murdoch II, actually. Uh, Big on uh, handing down names in this family. And Randolph's maternal grandfather, Joseph W. Davis, was the well-to-do cousin of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Family's money, uh, uh, you know, goes back a a long way. They had had weight in the area for a long time. Randolph Sr. attended the Naval Academy in uh, Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, I don't know why that word all of a sudden has just escaped me how to say (laughs) Annapolis. I think it's how you say that. <laughs> That's it. And a law school at the University of South Carolina in the state capital of Columbia. Nailed that one. 86 miles from Hampton. Go Gamecocks! I actually wore a USC Gamecocks baseball hat for much of my senior year in high school knowing absolutely nothing about the University of South Carolina. I just thought it was funny that, that Cock was in the name of the mascot. I, I doubt any of you who've listened for any length of time are surprised to hear that at all. Uh, 1910, Randolph Sr. founded the family law firm in Little Old Hampton back when less than 750 people lived in the town. The law firm eventually became known as the law firm of Peters, Murdoch, Parker, uh, Eltroth, and Derrick. P-M-P-E-D. Not sure when Peters jumped to get to, to get top billing. Guessing, guessing, guessing Alec fucked something up at some point, wasn't a good enough lawyer to, uh, you know, run the firm and keep the Murdoch name at the, at the start. Also, a law firm that is literally one letter away from the word pimped. Seriously, no one caught that? Did they just run with it because they thought it was funny? <laughs> Bros, let's not just be lawyers. Let's be law dog pimps. Working these client hoes. Bros before hoes. Pimps first forever. At Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Ellsroth, and Derek. Woo! Firm was rebranded last year as the Parker Law Group. Name Murdoch finally dropped. And the new name honors partner Johnny Parker for his 50 years of service. Uh, Back to Randolph, the original patriarch, uh, also ran a daily paper called the Hampton County Herald, controlling the press and the legal system. Paper only lasted a few years before folding. The Hampton County Herald already existed, and I guess there wasn't enough room for two papers in the same sparsely populated area. Uh, The Herald is still around, just barely, in digital form. 1920, Randolph Sr. was a less elected solicitor for the 14th Judicial Circuit, excluding a period of a few months in 1956 one of the Murdoch men would serve as solicitor for 86 straight years. 
Randolph Sr. married Etta Causey Harvey in 1914. They had two sons, Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. and John Glenn, Johnny Murdoch, born in 1915 and 1918, respectively. Hampton, South Carolina would remain the Murdoch's home base for decades. And this little town and the surrounding area, my, how it would suffer under the Murdoch rule. Uh, James Lasden wrote about what Hampton has become today for the New Yorker in January of 2023. He wrote, the terrain there is the gray-green of Corot landscapes, but flatter and drabber with dollar store general stores and El Cheapo gas stations instead of viaducts and windmills. He's talking about a landscape painter there. Uh, Hampton has seen better days and a former Westinghouse plant stands as a poignant monument. The only other structures of any scale in town are the red brick edifices of the First Baptist Church, the law office where Alec used to work, and the county courthouse. Right? Quite a picture. Ladson also spoke with Jack Fanning, a former environmental consultant from Charleston, to learn more about Hampton. Fanning told him that the area was once full of rice plantations, followed by cotton, corn, and soy, that while these plantations made good money for a while, at least for the owners, they also depleted the soil of uh, important minerals. Chemical fertilizers then further damaged the soil, and eventually the area was used to grow uh, loblolly pines, a southern pine species, for their pulp. The other main industries in town were medical waste disposal, Tire grinding and, quote, other grim occupations. And what is tire grinding, you might ask? Well, tire grinding is the process of removing a thin layer of rubber from a tire's tread to make the tire smooth again so you can get more miles out of it. It's cheaper than replacing tires. Basically, if you live in an area where tire grinding is a popular thing, you live in a very fucking poor area where a lot of people can't afford to replace their tires. Tire grinding, medical waste disposal. Two of the area's main industries. Goddamn. A handful of money have made, uh, or a handful of people have made great money in the Hampton area, though. Ambulance chasers. A variety of personal injury lawyers experienced great success in the Hampton area, have experienced over the years, especially pimped, making that money. Who would have guessed those pimps got paid? Uh, According again to Ladson from the New York, from the New Yorker, It had perfected a litigation strategy that took advantage of an unusual state provision, allowing residents who had suffered an injury to sue in whatever county they chose, as long as the company had a presence there. The injury could have occurred anywhere in South Carolina. The provision was rescinded in 2005, but by then Hampton County had become a mecca for plaintiffs, with obliging juries frequently awarding multi-million dollar verdicts in suits brought by pimped, those grimy motherfuckers. Uh, the exact type of attorneys who have created a society where we all have to pay more for basic goods, fucking everything, have to pay tons of insurance money, still worry about lawsuits or not pay for a whole variety of insurance uh, and then worry about some opportunist taking everything you have. Fuck those pimps. Truly a blight on society. Parasites masquerading as protectors of the little guy. There are a lot of good law firms out there, but pimped, not one of them in my opinion. Uh, due in large part to a shit ton of frivolous litigation from the fucking pimps and perhaps a few other firms, big corporations started to avoid the area. Yeah, you can't, I don't blame them. According to Forbes, Walmart was going to open a store in Hampton, but decided not to after their legal team found out about how litigious the area was. Bill Nettles, a former U.S. attorney in South Carolina, told the New Yorker, it's important to understand how isolated that part of the world is. It's insanely poor and there's no industry aside from suing people, end quote. What a fucked up situation. All thanks in large part to the Murdoch's shitty law firm squeezing the fucking life out of this area like the parasites they are 
for decades, scaring away employers. And it's not, now you have a bunch of people living in multi-generational poverty, barely scraping a life together, grinding fucking tires or dumping toxic medical waste while some fat cat local fuckhead attorneys are living high on the hog, ruling over the locals like some medieval duke presiding over his duchy. According to the Greenville News, Randolph Sr. initially made a name for himself prosecuting officers of the three largest banking institutions in Hampton County. At one time, the Murdochs maybe were an honorable family. On September 21st, 1926, the Hampton County Grand Jury indicted officers of the Merchants and Planners Bank of Varnville, the Merchants and Planners Bank of Brunson, and the Bank of Hampton for violating state financial laws. Then in February of 1928, Randolph Sr. and Hampton attorney George Warren successfully prosecuted two Beaufort County bankers for making false statements in a conspiracy involving the Beaufort Bank. Finally, in July of 1930, Randolph Sr., appointed by the state attorney general during a special term of court in Lancaster, South Carolina, he prosecuted two officers of the First National Bank and Trust, a now defunct organization. And I hope all that was noble and not just based on, I don't know, personal vendettas or something. You know, banks need to be kept in line for sure. But also, if you scare away an area's banks, you're going to help fuck over its economy. During his lifetime, Randolph Sr. also involved in a case against a former South Carolina governor. Ironic how good he was at attacking corruption, considering how insanely corrupt his great-grandson would turn out to be. In July of 1924, uh, Randolph Sr. prosecuted a major case against Governor Wilson G. Harvey, who was also the former president of the Enterprise Bank of Charleston. He was charged with violating state banking laws, state banking laws, by accepting deposits when he knew the bank was insolvent, that is, unable to pay funds or pay debts. Unfortunately for Randolph, uh, Harvey was acquitted. But then in April 1925, Harvey did plead guilty to lending excessive amounts of the Enterprise Bank's money to the Consolidated Truck and Auto Company of Charleston. And in exchange for his guilty plea, the prosecution dropped two other charges against him. And then Randolph Sr. would die in 1940 under interesting circumstances. Randolph Jr., a.k.a. Buster, would receive a massive payout, uh, undisclosed, uh, after his father's death and then took over as his uh, as the position of... Uh, took over the position of solicitor. Uh, Current South Carolina journalist Michael M. DeWitt Jr. uncovered the details of his death by searching through archives from the Hampton County Guardian, where he works as an editor. Why can't I say basic words today? In the final months of his life, Randolph Sr. was often too sick with an unknown illness, likely cancer, to come to court so his son, Buster, would fill in for him. On July 18th, 1940, Randolph, uh, feeling well enough to go visit a friend in a nearby town, and it would be the last time he would visit anyone, On the way home around 1 a.m., July 19th, his car came to a stop on top of some railroad tracks. Just sat there, according to witnesses. He was killed instantly when a freight train slammed into the car. His mangled body found 150 feet away. He was 59 years old when he died. Locals have not surprisingly speculated that his death was, you know, suicide or alcohol-related. Like his progeny, he was known to be a hard drinker. His death was controversially, 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 my God, ruled accidental, Uh, There was a lot of speculation. It was only ruled that way to make sure his son got a massive insurance payout because suicide would yield his family nothing. So a guy who's big on prosecuting corruption uh, could have very likely, you know, committed insurance fraud as his final act. After his dad died, uh, Randolph Jr., a.k.a. Buster, announced that he was going to run for solicitor and then won won the election. In October 1940, Buster would sue the railroad company Charleston and Western Carolina Railway Co. and argue that poor railroad maintenance contributed to his father's death. But it didn't. The train's engineer testified that Randolph Sr.'s car was stopped near the tracks initially, 
but in a safe space. Randolph raised his hand, waved at the engineer, then just moments before the train crossed past him, he sped up the car up, slammed on the brakes, and put himself right on the tracks when the engineer would not have time to stop. So obviously very intentional, obviously entirely his fucking fault, not the railway company's fault at all. Zero percent their fault. Still, the Murdoch family would settle with Charleston and Western Carolina Railway Co. for an undisclosed amount. So what a bunch of bullshit, right? It wasn't their fault. Some asshole chose to take himself out via death by train. His son, clearly somewhat of an opportunist, uh, he'd already gotten a large insurance payout, which I knew the exact amount of the family's association with frivolous litigation didn't already exist. Well, it does now. Charleston and Western Carolina Railway uh, would later be absorbed into the CSX Transportation Company, one of the biggest freight carriers in the nation, and pimped those fucking parasites would frequently sue them. Of course they did. I, I hate these motherfuckers. Truly despise people who make their money off of other people's hard work, right? Let somebody else build up a big company and then sue them over some bullshit. Zero integrity in that. It's disgusting. From 1992 to 2002, these law dog pimps filed four dozen personal injury cases against the company and earned just uh, right around $19 million, just under, in settlements and judgments. During his time as solicitor, Buster will get into the Murdoch's first big public scandal, prosecuting two high-profile federal cases in Charleston. It had to do with the great Colleton County Whiskey Conspiracy. 1951, federal agent Henderson Clary shot a bootlegger named Doc Freeman. And then federal agents later learned that Freeman was in cahoots, this moonshiner in cahoots with local officials. Buster was very likely, if not certainly, one of these officials. Uh, five years later, 1956, Buster will be one of 30 defendants indicted for a conspiracy to violate internal revenue laws relating to liquor. Supposedly, it was not only just in cahoots with a variety of moonshiners, but the mastermind of a big bootlegging and prosecution, or excuse me, bootlegging and protection scheme, like he was some fucking mob boss. And locals have referred to the Murdochs as an organized crime family. On October 1st, 1956, uh, Murdoch and two others were acquitted of all charges against them after some slick legal maneuvering. The rest of the defendants, mostly dirt poor locals, were convicted. The Calton County Sheriff was sentenced to seven years in prison and uh, had to pay a $3,000 fine. Buster not getting into any trouble in this situation was viewed suspiciously by many. A clear example of a Murdoch being above the law. There's a law for everybody else. And then there's the law for the Murdochs. Clear sign that the family had a, a lot of important local people in their pocket. Randolph Murdoch uh, III took office in 1986 after his father finally retired after Buster was done. He ran unopposed in every election until his retirement 20 years later in 2006. And then would work more years at the family law firm. While solicitor, Randolph served as lead prosecutor in over 200 murder cases. Uh, sent a lot of people to death row. In many of those cases, Alec, you know, his son helped him out. Randolph also seems to have intervened in numerous police investigations to make sure his family didn't get in trouble, like allegedly intimidating witnesses in his grandson Paul's boat crash. Randolph and his wife, Elizabeth Alexander, would have four children. Randolph IV, a.k.a. Randy, uh, Richard Alexander, a.k.a. Alec, John Marvin, a.k.a. Pooh Bear, and Lynn, a.k.a. Honey Nipples. And I may have made up those last two nicknames. Honey Nipples sounds divine. Who doesn't, want, who doesn't want to meet honey nipples? Okay. So now it's about time for Alex Murdoch's timeline. A few things to keep in mind as we dive into it. This guy was born into multi-generational wealth in a very, very poor county. I cannot stress enough 
how there was no family in this area with the wealth and the clout of the Murdochs. People who knew them said over and over that there was, you know, the world for them and the world for everybody else in various docuseries. In Hampton County, right, it was the Murdochs and then there was the rest. Being solicitor meant they had law enforcement privileges, right? Didn't just prosecute people. Uh, They would often be the first to show up at crime scenes. (laughs) A lot of speculation about them uh, rearranging shit at various crime scenes to their benefit. Uh, The perception of many locals, at the very least, is that law enforcement in Hampton County worked for them. If you opposed them, you did so at great risk to your career. Quite possibly, it could end your career. And according to some of the locals interviewed, you might just disappear altogether. Right? The Murdochs supposedly ran this county. They did what they pleased. Many local families forbid their children from hanging out with Alec Murdoch's kids because it was common knowledge that if the, the group of kids all got into trouble, the Murdoch kids not going to be punished. You're going to be punished. Even if you didn't fucking do anything and they did, you would take the fall for them. I think understanding how they had been above the law for decades helps explain partially the arrogance of Alec and his crimes, his brazen crimes. He did stupid shit most normal people would never even entertain getting away with. But he did that shit because for years he did get away with it. Constantly. Was handsomely rewarded. So entitled, so privileged. He clearly thought his name, uh, you know, uh, and, and the bullshit stories he could feed to the police on the payroll in some sense would just always be enough to get him out of whatever trouble he might face. And he thought that because, you know, it worked for a long time until finally it didn't. And when it didn't, so many skeletons would start to come out of the closet. So many victims would finally feel empowered to stand up to him. And then the charges would just keep piling on and piling on and piling on. A floodgate had been opened and there was a lot of dirty water behind it. Let's check out that water. Right after the first of today's two mid-show sponsor breaks, completely ad-free episodes and more available on Patreon for five bucks a month. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, What would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 
15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant, or the 1 gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around. Now it's time to jump into Alec Murdoch's epic downward spiral of a timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Randolph the third son, Richard Alexander Murdoch, born May 27th, 1968. Truly sucking a dick this week. Dick Alexander. Uh, Dick's older brothers, Randolph the fourth, called Randy, not Handy Randy, just Randy, and John Marvin, and Sister Lynn, all sweet, sultry honey nips. Uh, Alec graduated from Wade Hampton High School in the twin town of Varnville, South Carolina. He attended college like most of the Murdoch men before him and his sons at the University of South Carolina. Go, go Gamecocks! In Columbia, where he, uh, in 1990, earned a BA in English and Speech Communications. Then graduated from USC's School of Law in 1994. Go Cox, go! 
And Alec uh, met his wife at USC in 1991, and two cocks would fall in love. Maggie Murdoch, uh, born Margaret Kennedy Barnstetter, born in Nashville, Tennessee, September 15, 1968. Maggie's high school friend, Lisa Heineman Moore, would tell the New York Post following her death, we had our little cliques and we ran after boys and did a little partying and drinking, but I think her dreams were what she was taught. She was from the South, and the Southern dream for a girl at that time was to finish college, maybe, but more importantly, find a husband, get married, and have kids. I would add find a well-to-do husband. Uh, I dated a Southern girl once uh, from a traditional Southern family, uh, and she talked about how that culture very much alive and well today. How uh, a traditional Southern woman did not go to school to get a degree, but rather to find a good provider. Lisa noted that her friendship with Maggie ended on a sour note because Maggie could be cruel, made fun of her weight. Uh, Maggie was uh, said to have a bit of a mean streak by some people. Maggie's dad eventually moved to Copper River, or Cooper River, excuse me, South Carolina for work. Uh, Maggie enrolled at the University of South Carolina and joined the Kappa Delta sorority, Alec, a year ahead of her in school. Alec was Maggie's uh, first real boyfriend, according to an anonymous friend. That same friend told the New York Post that Alec informed Maggie she would have to move to Hampton with him if she wanted to marry him. No wiggle room with that, right? He knew he was destined to run the family law firm if he hoped to stay in the will or be accepted by the family. It was his duty to be yet another Hampton law dog pimp. Uh, Alec and Maggie got married August 14th, 1993. We had two sons, Richard Alexander Murdoch Jr., nicknamed Buster, like his great grandpa, and Paul Terry Murdoch, nicknamed Papa. Oh, Buster and Papa, nice. Buster was born on April 11th, 1993, and Papa born almost uh, six years later, exactly, April 14th, 1999. Maggie, often called Mags, worked as a stay-at-home mom for her entire post-collegiate adult life outside of a brief period when she opened a gift shop in uh, Hampton. Many have said that she spoiled both of her sons tremendously, basically indulged their every whim. They could do no wrong in mama's eyes, right? Big-time enabling for Buster and Papa. An acquaintance na- named uh, Bubba Mixon told the New York Post that Maggie was an old-school homemaker and mother, saying Maggie lived for her kids. She was at every school function. She was such a sweet person, never met a stranger, can't say enough good about her, and I mean that. As we'll see in the timeline, uh, old Polly Papa did not seem to benefit in many ways from Mama's uh, enabling, kind nurturing, and Dad never seemed to really put his foot down with him either. They seem to have, by many accounts, created a fucking monster in Paul by far the more outwardly rebellious of the two sons. For example, an anonymous family member told the New York Post that when Paul was around 11 years old, he told an aunt to go fuck herself. When the relative confronted him about it, he said he didn't give a shit. <laughs> he said it. He never got in any trouble. Kind of funny. Uh, pretty sure I would have gotten in a lot of trouble. <laughs> if at 11 years old, I would have told one of my aunts to go fuck themselves. I wish I knew what she did. I mean, if she threw him down the stairs... You know, and then he got up, you know, and said, ah, go fuck yourself. Then justified. But I bet she didn't do anything that egregious. Probably just told him like, hey, what are you doing? Knock that shit off. You know, something you shouldn't be doing. Ah, go fuck yourself. Same relative said about Maggie. She had this thing where she'd roll her eyes when someone was doing something stupid like Alec or Paul. She bent over backwards for her kids. Maybe to a fault. Those boys wanted for nothing. Because of their long legal history in the area, by the time Alec became an attorney, the Murdoch family had developed deep, close relationships with local law enforcement possibly, if not certainly, very illegal. I'll do this for you if you just look the other way for me relationships, which will come into play later in the timeline. Alex's brother, Randy, uh, also worked at the family firm. Uh, Honey Nips, she did her own shit. 
You know, honey nips do what honey nips do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, Randy would tell a reporter for ABC after Maggie and Paul were killed. We were part of the community. Or excuse me. We are part of the community. We're no different than anybody else. We've just been here as attorneys for a long time in our family. He added, I see words like dynasty used and power, but we're just regular people. They're working hard and trying to do right. And I think when you do those things, people respect you. We had great opportunities. So many other people interviewed do not share Randy's sentiments at all. Like 99% of the people I've seen questioned about the Murdoch family who don't have the last name of Murdoch do not share his sentiment. Alec and his family lived in Hampton, South Carolina for years. They also own, thanks to inheritances, a 1,700-acre property in Islandton, Colleton County, just 13 miles from Hampton, an estate called Moselle, a uh, place central uh, to this story, central location of this story. Moselle purchased in 2013 was the Murdoch family's hunting grounds. Mainly hogs and birds of prey seem to have been hunted there. Housed the main house, a cabin, dog kennels, as well as swampland, multiple ponds, even a landing strip for small planes. One local said about Moselle, that was where the party spot was in Hampton. A lot of fights, alcohol, and drugs. According to a deposition, beer was kept in a walk-in cooler and kids on site were able to uh, drink freely. And you know what? In the right hands... I don't, I don't hate that policy. Maybe just pay attention to how much everyone's drinking. Maybe make sure they're not driving, right? Uh, have the keys been collected? Does everyone's parents know what's going on? Are teens being given a safe place to drink uh, since they're going to drink anyway? Or were the Murdochs just providing a party spot for whoever their kids wanted to get you know, fucked up with and providing little to no supervision? The latter is what seems to have gone on there. Eventually, Maggie and Alex sold their house in Hampton, split time between their Moselle house and the and a cottage at uh, Edesto, Edesto Beach, I think is how they say it, pronunciation at the front, or emphasis, 77 miles from Hampton, uh, a two-minute walk from the ocean. Beautiful, beautiful little spot. Around 2015, Paul started dating a girl named Morgan Dowdy, who went to the same high school, two met in history class. In her interview for the Netflix docuseries Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal, Morgan said she was attracted to Paul's playful personality, and they started dating her junior year. Morgan's relationship with Paul would become an important source for insight into the Murdoch family. Morgan's parents, Bill and Diane Dowdy, said in an interview that for a time they thought Paul was a wonderful young man. Morgan's family, originally from Long Island, so they had no idea who the Murdochs were before Morgan started dating Paul. Morgan hoped their families could mingle, but soon learned they were from two different worlds. He didn't elaborate on exactly what he meant by that. It seemed to insinuate a world of no supervision, entitlement, and loads of money. Morgan said that Alec and Maggie treated her like she was part of the family. Morgan's dad said they were, uh, you know, take, take her with them to events like the Kentucky Derby, uh, Final Four basketball games, even overseas fishing trips. I'm sure she also enjoyed thinking about the financial freedom she might have if she uh, married into this wealthy family. I mean, how could she not? Maybe that fantasy helped her look, overlook a lot of Paul's abusive behavior. More on that in a bit. Uh, in her interview, Morgan said it was normal for all of the family to drink a lot and keep the house stocked with alcohol. According to Morgan, Maggie and Alec were okay with them drinking and would buy them alcohol if they wanted it. Paul often drank excessively, and then his personality would change when he drank. Papa would transform, according to a few of his friends, into an alter ego uh, when drunk, an alter ego that actually had a name, Timmy. <laughs> Seriously. Apparently, Timmy talked differently, carried himself in a different manner, uh, even did this weird shit where his, his hands would stiffen, like a lot of separation between the fingers, and none of them would bend, just pointing straight out, like he's fucking Edward Scissorhands or some shit. 
saw different videos of him as Timmy, and it's uh, it's weird. I've witnessed plenty of alcohol-induced personality shifts, but but never seen the weird stiff arm, stiff finger thing before. Morgan recalled he would go from being like sweet, and then like two drinks in, he'd be a completely different person. That's not a good sign. Morgan confided to her mother that she would sometimes try to talk to Maggie about how much Paul was drinking, but Maggie would brush it off. Bill Dowdy said the Murdoch family looked the other way because Paul, uh, because sending Paul to rehab would have, you know, tarnished the family's reputation, which was very important to them. In contrast to statements from the family, Morgan also said that Maggie wasn't as loving with Paul as many people uh, have said, not as loving as she was with Buster. She said that she was more detached from Paul, right? Buster was the golden child, kind of. He was also a fuck-up, but less of a fuck-up. Uh, Buster went to law school in the university, at the University of South Carolina just like his dad, which made the family proud. Paul didn't want to be a lawyer. He confided to Morgan that he believed his parents thought he was a disappointment. Okay, now let's start to talk about death. Deaths associated with Alec Murdoch's family. In discussing this first death, it's important to note that any Murdoch connection to it is just a rumor. A very popular rumor, but still, it's hearsay. In the early hours of July 8th, 2015, an individual called 911 to report a body lying in the middle of a rural road in Hampton County, South Carolina. And that body belonged to 19-year-old Stephen Smith, a local nursing student. Stephen had grown up in the area, well-known, well-liked by many. Uh, Stephen's vehicle found approximately three miles away with the gas cap unscrewed and his wallet still inside. Stephen had gone to a night class and was on his way home when he seems to have run out of gas, or at least the scene was set up to look like he ran out of gas and then walked off to find some gas. However, his body would not be found en route to a gas station, but rather further away from one. Very odd for a local who knew the area extremely well. Also, you know, who leaves their wallet in their car if they're heading out walking to get gas? When Stephen's body was found, he was laying on the road on his back, had a hole in his head, uh, what seemed like a defensive wound on his hand. Local police would quickly rule his death as being due to a vehicle hitting him. And according to a highway patrol officer, this determination was made pretty much solely on his body being found in the road. How did he die? Well, a car must have hit him. I mean, you can see he's laying in the road. So clearly a car hit him. <laughs> that was about the, the totality of it. However, a state trooper was recorded saying nothing at the scene appeared that it was a vehicular accident. No torn clothes. His shoes were still on his feet. Cell phone still in his pocket. Injuries that I noticed this young man was to his head. He also didn't have any road rash on any exposed skin. It appeared to uh, many like he was killed and then dumped on the road, but that's not what the authorities ruled. The Island Packet, a daily newspaper for Beaufort County, obtained a report that showed that some investigators definitely suspected that Stephen had been shot. Days later, Stephen's mother, Sandy Smith, told the police that she had heard that Paul and Buster Murdoch were behind his death. They've been out that night looking for trouble. Officers looked into this tip, which opened the possibility that his death was a hate crime, but then quickly dismissed it initially. Uh, it's thought they didn't look very hard into the tip because, again, you just didn't dig too hard into what the Murdochs were up to if you cared about your fucking career. Stephen was also openly gay and a county said to be very homophobic. One of the only kids in the area, maybe the only kid, you know, truly openly gay. And there were rumors among the former high school, uh, their former high school classmates that he and Buster were secretly together romantically. You know, did their relationship get back to dad? Very conservative, small-town Southerner, worried about the family reputation, the family name, worried that Buster being outed would be bad for business. Did Stephen threaten Buster with outing him, and he chose to silence Stephen forever? Did Paul hear about this and want to take Stephen out? There's all kinds of rumors 
about Stephen's death. And almost every single one of them leads right back to the Murdochs. A full 10 people uh, who were interviewed in connection with Stephen's death by law enforcement said that Buster Murdoch should be questioned. So that's suspicious. The Hampton County Guardian did a story about Stephen's death for their Thanksgiving 2015 uh, paper. Sandy Smith appealed for help with his case. The paper couldn't use the Murdoch name, so they reported that a prominent, well-known family was rumored to be involved. And everyone in town knew exactly who the fuck they were talking about. The case would quickly go cold, become another skeleton in the Murdoch closet, but would be reopened years later and would come spilling out. Things now settled down for the Murdochs in the court of public opinion for the next uh, three years. But then they would become once again the talk of the town in early 2018, following another suspicious death rumored to connect back to them. On February 2nd, 2018, Maggie Murdoch calls 911 after the family housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, falls down the front steps of the Moselle house and is unresponsive. Kind of unresponsive. Gloria was uh, 57 years old. She'd worked for the family for over 20 years. According to many, she had practically raised Papa and Buster was more of a mother to them than their own mother. Uh, she had been in a romantic relationship at one point with Honey Nips. She introduced the family to many of their closest friends, Gator, Tank, Wallyball, Tank Tonk, Dirty Sanchez, and Skunk Trap. <laughs> And I made up all of that after, uh, you know, Buster. Uh, Gloria came. No, she wasn't in a romantic relationship with Honey Nips. Gloria came to work that morning as usual, the day of her death, reportedly tripped over the family dogs, heading up the brick stairs, fell backwards, and split her ho- head open. Maybe. A lot of people doubt it went down like this. Paul and Maggie would give contradicting statements in the 911 call. Alec would later uh, admit that he lied about details of her death in order to commit insurance fraud. Call starts off with Maggie giving the address and saying, my housekeeper has fallen and her head is bleeding. I cannot get her up. Maggie initially reported that Gloria fell while walking up the steps, but no mention of a dog. She first says that Gloria was unresponsive, but then adds that she's awake and mumbling. Then changes again and says, no, she's not responsive. Then changes yet again and says, well, she is mumbling. Uh, Maggie also says that she is breathing. Maggie takes on a very annoyed tone with the 911 operator, kind of has it out the gate. Uh, but then gets more annoyed over being asked too many questions. Operator has to tell her that she had already sent the first responders and that these questions are not delaying anything and they're important questions so the first responders know what they're walking into. Maggie then tells the operator that Gloria has fallen back down. Apparently she tried to get up, then hit her head again. Operator asks if Maggie can bring the phone to Gloria now so Gloria can tell her directly how she's feeling. And then Maggie can be heard mumbling to someone else just just off the phone. Throughout all of this, Maggie never sounds emotional, upset, not at all. Just sounds annoyed. I found her response, her tone to be very fucking cold-blooded. Paul Papa now gets on the phone. Operator asks Paul if he can uh, ask the patient what kind of pain, or if she can ask the patient what kind of pain she's experiencing. Paul responds, also in a very irritated tone. Ma'am, she can't talk. She's cracked her head and there's blood on the concrete and she's bleeding out of her left ear. Paul then adds that he was holding Gloria up. She asked him to, after she fell. So she falls down, hits her head. Paul then goes to help her, uh, holding her up. He says Gloria tells him to turn her loose. And then he does. And she falls back down and hits her head again. Fucking what? Why, why would she do that? And why would he act that way? Why would he let her smack her head again, regardless of, of what she said, if she's badly hurt and clearly not thinking straight? This makes no sense. The operator continues asking questions. Now Paul asks her if she can stop, just like his mom did. Can you stop asking so many questions? 
Operator again stays calm, says, hey, these are important questions. And you know what? First responders are on the way. Why are both of them so fucking annoyed about being questioned, right? If her death is truly an accident. Entitlement oozing out of their mouths as they talk. Both Maggie and Paul on this phone call seem like huge pricks. People very used to be the one uh, to ask the questions and not being questioned. To quote someone in the YouTube comments below a video of the phone call, the most liked comments, they both sound bothered and inconvenienced. This is so heartbreaking to hear how, uh, how cold they are in such a serious situation. They can't even render first aid or simply hold her hand. Yeah, nailed it, Madison Goldman, 2446. Uh, Gloria was unresponsive by the time EMTs arrived, then died in the hospital uh, February 26th. She never regained consciousness, never able to communicate what had happened to her. Paul, despite how he sounded on the 911 call, was, according to some sources, allegedly devastated by her death. Morgan would later say that Paul received more acceptance and love from uh, her you know, than his own mom. Uh, again, that she practically raised him. She said Gloria gave Paul what Maggie didn't. Morgan added that she felt like something happened to Gloria that they weren't saying, and that it didn't involve the dogs. Alec, as everyone would learn later, was well over a decade into his opioid addiction at this point. Early 2018, Gloria allegedly found plastic baggies of drugs taped under Alec's bed at the family's Hampton house. According to Michael DeWitt from The Guardian there, the Hampton County Guardian, there were rumors around town that Maggie pushed Gloria down the stairs in a moment of anger over this uh, addiction, over the opioids, wanting to keep this thing a secret. Around this time, private investigator hired by Stephen Smith's mom, Steve uh, Peterson, right, called Moselle caretaker Ronnie Freeman to ask if he'd heard anything about Stephen's death. Freeman said no regarding Stephen, but during this uh, conversation does bring up Gloria Satterfield's death. Ronnie said he got to work at 7.30 the morning she died. Gloria usually got there at 8.30. The morning of her death, he saw her walking up to the house with a McDonald's cup in her hand, purse on her shoulder, just like normal. Maggie called him about 15 minutes later. She was hysterical and said, you got to get up here. Gloria fell. There's blood everywhere. He said when he made it to where Gloria lay, her feet were above her head and they wanted to get her lying flat. Paul grabbed her legs. Ronnie grabbed her shoulders to move her. Steve informed Ronnie that investigative report stated that Alec talked to Gloria and she told him that the dogs tripped her. And Ronnie replied, just matter of factly, that's not true. He wasn't there. When Alec was interviewed about Gloria, he said he talked to Gloria before she was taken away by the ambulance and she said the family dogs caused her to fall, but no one witnessed this and it couldn't have happened according to Ronnie because Alec was not home when this all happened. So why would he pretend to be? Well, you'll see soon that his lie had everything to do with money and possibly covering up a crime that his wife or son committed. What did happen to Gloria? You know, did she get into some kind of confrontation with Maggie? Is that what happened? Did Maggie truly push her? Maybe didn't even intend to kill her. But then that's what happened. This will not be the last we will hear, hear about the uh, death of Gloria Satterfield. By early 2019 now, Paul Murdoch, now 19, about to turn 20, is an undergrad student at the University of South Carolina. Go Cox! Paul had become a, a pretty fucking reckless young man, very entitled, had frequent interactions with law enforcement. Paul often confided in his, in his grandpa, Randolph III, when he got into trouble over and over. Uh, Papa would be bailed out by his papa. Morgan Dowdy explained that Paul always called his grandfather first when he got into trouble. Randolph would then call Alec, and then the two of them would come up with a story. Morgan said, when I tell you it's like you snap your fingers and it was gone, that's how it was. A little more about Paul and Morgan now. Papa was both verbally and physically abusive to his girlfriend, Morgan. 
Numerous friends witnessed Paul pushing, slapping Morgan around. Morgan's friend Miley Altman said in her docu-series interview that their fights were not normal and that they made the, the rest of their kind of social group very uncomfortable. Morgan's friends tried to tell her to end her relationship with Paul, and she would, but then she would always go back to him. It's a sad cycle that plays out too often. Uh, Morgan said she clung to the relationship because when it was good, it was really good, but admitted that the bad times were especially bad. She was just 16 and 17 while all this has happened, by the way. Very, very young. Recently deceased Gloria Satterfield once told Morgan, this is so fucked up. This is attitude. You know how he is, you know, again, re- you know, referring to, to Paul, you know how he is. And you're either going to have to learn how to deal with his temper or you need to get out. Uh, hey, Gloria, uh, rest in peace and all that. But, but also, how about you fuck right off with that advice? You don't just learn how to deal with domestic violence. You fucking leave. And hopefully you, you, you're able to call the police and get that person in trouble, right? That, that's a sensible option. There's no like, yeah, but they just have a temper, you know, but no, fuck, fuck the butts. <laughs> Uh, similarly, Maggie once told Morgan that Randolph's wife, Libby, wanted a divorce. So what did he do? This is his, you know, his grandparents. He published her obituary in the Hampton Guardian. That is not such a subtle threat, right? Divorce me, you're fucking dead. This is what his grandpa does. So what a, what a great role model. Uh, Morgan said this was Maggie's way of letting her know what she was signing herself up for. Okay, Maggie, how about you also fuck right off with that shit? Holy enabling. No wonder Paul was, according to many, an entitled douchebag, right? Allowing baby boy to get exactly with anything and everything is how you create, you know, a monster like that. Morgan recounted an incident that occurred when she and Paul were heading home from a Christmas party once. She said uh, she was driving, but then Paul demanded that she get out of the driver's seat. He's going to drive. They get into a fight. Paul starts being aggressive. So probably some name calling, maybe putting his hands on her. She concedes to his demands. He was driving okay at first then when he took over, but then lost control. He's drunk, made a turn, and they crashed into a ditch. Paul had guns, beer cans, in the vehicle. They went flying out. Morgan started to call 911 right away. Make sure they get, you know, uh, an ambulance. Make sure they're okay. Paul snatches the phone out of her hand, hangs up, throws the phone into some brush. Calls grandpa. Tells him where he is. Then calls his dad. Randolph, Alec, Maggie all show up at the scene before police. Take all the guns, take the beer cans from the vehicle, ask Morgan if she if she had called 911 when she said yes. One of them snapped, why did you do that? And then berated her for doing something so stupid. Told her they she could have gotten Paul in trouble, right? You're supposed to get in trouble for that shit. That's the lesson. That's how you learn. Guess who's been a really good designated driver for the past dozen plus years? This guy. Why? Getting punished for one DUI was the wake-up call I needed. Had I gotten away with it, I could have, probably would have kept doing it until maybe, you know, I really, really hurt somebody or killed somebody. Punishment is one of life's greatest teachers. But, uh, you know, Papa never got to meet that uh, teacher. In another incident, Morgan said that she and Paul were sharing a hotel room after celebrating Buster's graduation. Said Paul kept kicking her in the bed. And when Morgan yelled at him to stop, she said Paul got on top of her, held her throat, punched her and screamed, I told you to shut up. So that's, uh, that's who he is. By February of 2019, Morgan felt like she had to end the relationship and did just that. If she wouldn't have done that, she probably would have done it after this next incident. Before I talk about the big boat crash that seemed to uh, greatly accelerate the Murdoch family's demise, let's have our last mid-show sponsor break. You know what's one of the best things to bring with you wherever you go? Raycon's Everyday Earbuds. 
Raycons offer amazing quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. Their tens of thousands of five-star reviews speak to that. Your Raycons can go with you everywhere so you can listen at any time. With eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, you don't have to worry about whether they're up for the task. Even though I'm not currently touring, I still travel a fair amount. And I love how small the case is. So easy to throw them in my jacket pocket like I did when Lindsay and I took my grandma to New Orleans. I use them on the plane to help fall asleep to some Nathaniel Ratliff. And then Enola, use them at the gym to get pumped up for a quick workout to some Chevelle. Perfect for both places. I was able to easily use noise isolation on the plane to block out flight noises and then switch to awareness mode at the gym so I'm not too lost in my own world and get in the way of others' workouts. Go to buyraycon.com slash timesuck today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Buyraycon.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Do you love to treat yourself? I mean, who doesn't? Maybe you buy fancy coffee or pay for the extra legroom on the plane. If you treat yourself to the top options other places, why settle when finding a doctor? It is your health after all. Enter ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book tens of thousands of top-tier doctors all with verified patient reviews. So don't settle. Go for the best and find the right doctor for you. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Timesuck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find a book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Timesuck. ZocDoc.com slash Timesuck. Thank you for not leaving. Now let's hear about the fateful night of February 24th, 2019, when Paul Murdoch showcases a, a, a bad case of affluenza after his actions directly lead to the death of a friend. On February 24th, 2019, 19-year-old Paul Murdoch was driving his dad's boat after a night out drinking with friends. Six teens were on the boat. Six teens were on the boat that night. Paul Murdoch, Morgan Dowdy, Anthony Cook, Mallory Beach, Connor Cook, and Miley Altman. 
All of them had been friends for years, uh, some since grade school. Paul and Morgan were taking a break from their romantic relationship at this point, but still had the same friend group. Anthony and Mallory were uh, in a pretty new relationship. Connor Cook, Anthony's cousin, was dating Miley. Their night started around 6.30 p.m. on February 23rd when the teens met at the Murdoch home, one of the Murdoch homes. They'd been invited to an oyster roast at another friend's house. Mallory Beach really wanted to go that night, but Anthony did not, and he gave in to make her happy. Paul told, Paul told Morgan that all her friends were going, and he wanted her to go with him. She felt like Paul was guilt-tripping her, and then she did decide to go mostly to be with her other friends. Paul went to Parker's convenience store, purchased 50 bucks worth of alcohol late in the afternoon using his brother Buster's ID. Then they all met at Murdoch Island, a river property of the Murdochs, and they started drinking. Paul beer-bonged six beers in pretty rapid succession, and then they decided to go to that oyster roast. Paul knew there would be traffic stops if he drove, so he decided to take his dad's boat instead. Then Paul drove his father's 17-foot fishing boat down a narrow, narrow coastal inlet near Beaufort, South Carolina, about an hour from Hampton. It was foggy and dark, and the teens would have to use a flashlight to see ahead at times. It was a long trip, but Paul and Connor Cook knew the area well and made it to the oyster roast just fine, docked the boat at the party around 8 p.m., and then they drank for you know a couple more hours. Then, according to Anthony Cook, some people made comments that it was getting pretty late, probably wasn't the best idea to take that boat back. Several people offered to drive the teens home, but Anthony said Paul wasn't having it. He was too proud. Morgan Dowdy later added in her interview, even if someone was to take the keys from Paul and be like, you're not getting on that boat, Paul would have a conniption. Murdochs don't really get told no much. They left, the oyster, they left the oyster roast around midnight. They were next captured on surveillance video, stopping off at a marina in downtown Beaufort around 1 a.m. Uh, there, Paul and Connor got, popped into a bar uh, for some shots. Uh, the rest of them didn't want him to do that, but no one could talk him out of it. Paul again used his brother's ID, this time at Luther's Rare and Well Done Restaurant. Inside, Paul and Connor each took two shots, then met up with everyone else on the dock where they reboarded the boat. It was pretty obvious that Paul was fucking hammered drunk. I, I've watched the CCTV uh, security footage taken from the dock and homeboy not able to walk straight. And, uh, you know, you can tell he's being argumentative as well. Papa, you know, is, is asleep now. Uh, Timmy's woken up. Timmy's at the party. And Timmy, by all accounts, was a real piece of shit. The teens tried to convince uh, Timmy Papa to let Connor or Anthony drive the boat, but he wouldn't listen. They also discussed getting an Uber. But Paul, old fucking straight finger, weird arm uh, holding, <laughs> weird like arm movement, Paul, uh, didn't want to leave his boat at the dock overnight. Once they were on the boat, they continued pleading with Paul not to drive. Could someone else drive, please? He said something to the effect of, well, this is my fucking boat, and I know this river, and you're not driving my boat. <laughs> Classic Timmy. Timmy do what Timmy do. When Timmy has his mindset to get some shit did, you know, it gets did. They all left Buford at 1.17 a.m. as documented by the boat's Garmin navigation system. Paul started behaving real erratically now, spinning the boat around in circles at a high speed, uh, coming dangerously close to hitting some tied-off sailboats, even drunkenly leaving the wheel completely unattended several different times. Everyone else apparently is fucking scared. He also uh, randomly took off all his clothes, except his underwear, despite the fact that it's 40 degrees out. <laughs> fucking Timmy! Timmy hates clothes! Right? Surprised he didn't whip his ginger cock out and ask people to take a, a special breathalyzer test. <laughs> that would have been so Timmy. Morgan later testified that Mallory told everyone she was scared after Paul yelled at her when she brought up the possibility of leaving the boat or having someone else drive it. Anthony yelled back at Paul. Then the argument didn't go any further. 
Uh, Miley Altman eventually told Paul that if he wasn't going to let somebody else drive, he needed to let her off on shore, you know, so she could try to get an Uber. Paul then got in her face and said, you just need to shut the fuck up and sit down. Paul and Morgan then get into an argument. Uh, He asked her, why don't you have my back? Morgan tells him he's acting crazy. Paul responds with a seriously dick rich kid comment saying, you know what's crazy? Your father not making enough money to support your family. Damn. Then Paul got in her face, started screaming profanities at her, slapped her in front of everyone, then fucking spit in her face. Morgan said this was not the only time he had done this kind of shit. Fucking Timmy. You just can't control Timmy. You can only hope to contain Timmy. And that hope probably still won't change a damn thing. When Paul left the wheel to go to the front of the boat now to fight with Morgan, the boat went into neutral and idled. Connor grabs the wheel to guide the boat. His attorney will later say this was the full extent of his operation of the boat, just making sure they didn't crash while it's in idle. Soon after Paul slaps Morgan, someone, likely Paul, slammed the throttle. No one would say for sure that Paul hit the throttle, but they all believe Paul did. Anthony Cook said, per the news outlet, WSAV, we went from a two-mile-per-hour idle to the bow of the boat sticking up in the air, and I went to the back. Anthony was holding Mallory when they both fell to the floor. As all this is going on, the boat is speeding towards a bridge at 2.30 in the morning. Connor tells Miley he loves her. Uh, She could tell he was scared. Miley and Morgan hold on to each other. Miley said she looked at the bridge, knew they were going to crash into it. The boat hit one of the pylons holding the bridge up fucking hard, bounces off, runs up onto some rocks at the base of the bridge. Two people immediately thrown overboard. The rest of them slammed around the boat. Mark Tinsley, a civil attorney, will later hire an engineer to recreate this crash. Based on the passenger's injuries, he could figure out who was where when the boat wrecked. Morgan and Miley were at the front. Paul and Connor, both in the middle, near the steering wheel. Anthony and Mallory in the back. When the boat hit the bridge, the front goes down, back comes up like a teeter-totter, right? Throws Anthony and Mallory out into the water. Think of a big teeter-totter with two people sitting on one side and then a, I don't know, 10,000 pound weight just fucking drops from the sky, hits the other side, launches those two people up into the air. Miley and Morgan sitting on a cooler when the boat hits the pylon. Morgan was thrown forward. Her hand was crushed between the bridge and the boat. She'd need a whole bunch of stitches for gashes across several fingers, need surgery. Miley had her feet up, luckily didn't feel a lot of the impact. Connor was thrown face first into the center console, hard enough to break his jaw, badly slice his face up. Windshield gets cracked, bar Connor was holding onto gets bent, which indicated to the engineer he couldn't have been driving at the time of the crash. He couldn't have broken the rod holders, his jaw, and ended up on the right side of the boat if he had been driving, which leaves Paul as the driver. Following the crash, Anthony quickly gets out of the water, crawls up onto the bank, Miley runs over to him and asks, where is Mallory? They now all call out to her. Connor calls 911. Morgan can be heard in the background of the 911 call screaming, where the fuck is Mallory? Anthony dives back into the water to look for her. The Beaufort County Sheriff's Department, the Port Royal Police Department, the Paris Island Marshal's Office, Emergency Medical Services, and the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources all respond to the scene. While everyone else is behaving normally, uh, it ends up taking them 15 to 20 minutes to get fucking Papa, old Timmy, into the ambulance because he is so drunk and belligerent. Numerous conversations between the teens and law enforcement are captured on dash cam footage. At one point, Anthony is recorded on camera screaming at Paul, who apparently now has a smug grin on his face as he walks towards Anthony, his best friend. And Anthony says, you fucking smile like it's fucking funny. My fucking girlfriend's gone. Hope you rot in fucking hell. He can also be heard saying, referring to Paul, do you know who that is? 
Alec Murdoch's son. Good luck. Good luck is in good luck punishing him for what he did because he always gets away with everything. Paul calls his grandpa Randolph III now. During the call, he can be heard saying, it was Cotton Top that did it. Cotton Top is Connor's nickname. Fucking Papa throwing Cotton Top under the bus is classic Timmy. The police were recorded talking about Paul's cell phone. They found a phone, thought it was Paul's, yet there will be, there will be no official record of his phone being collected that night. An officer from the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office later testifies that he saw the phone but did not collect it because he thought the investigation would be turned over to the DNR and believed the Sheriff's Office, you know, was just assisting. But then in a deposition, a DNR officer who responded to the 911 call said he never saw Paul's phone, his clothes, or his wallet. Huh. Did Alec or Randolph maybe, uh, you know, call up some law enforcement buddies? You know, get them to make sure that that phone disappeared? That's a rumor. There were 20 law enforcement uh, officers at the scene. None of them questioned Paul. Not a one. But all the other kids got questioned. Uh, you know, uh, they would ask them, like, who was driving, a variety of things. But Paul just gets special treatment. Anthony said Paul was driving. One officer told an EMT that the guy with no clothes on was driving. Uh, Mallory's mother, Renee Beach, finally receives a call 90 minutes after the crash at 4 a.m. She's told there had been an accident. Most of the kids are in the hospital, but they can't find Mallory. What a nightmare. Anthony Cook remains at the scene, refuses to leave without Mallory. The four other passengers sent to a hospital treated for injuries. Investigators from the DNR now come to the hospital to interview them. Morgan will recall that within 10 minutes of her arrival at the hospital, an officer told her that he needed to get her statement. Not getting Paul's statement still. According to an officer's report, while the DNR officer was in Paul's room uh, about to speak with him, Alec Murdoch and Grandpa Randolph walked into the room and ended the interview immediately. Randolph III told the officer, I'm his lawyer starting now. He hasn't given any statements. Randolph now stayed with Paul while Alec walked around the hospital to speak to the other victims and make sure they got their story, quote, right. Alec didn't ask about Mallory, didn't ask if anyone was okay, just wanted to make sure everyone was sticking to the same story, the same bullshit, can't let baby boy get a manslaughter charge, someone else else takes the fall uh, story, right? Who's, who's taking the fall for Papa? Looking at you, Cotton Top. Meanwhile, Paul reportedly is busy making explicitly sexual, flirtatious, and wildly inappropriate comments and requests to the nurses. Fucking Timmy! He he just won't quit. Hey, baby, I, I'm gonna broke my dick tonight. You think you can help me try and straighten it out? <laughs> hey, baby, my dick is dying. I think I think my dick has hypothermia. Do you know of any place tight and warm where I could stick it? Come on, baby, don't don't be mad. Uh, Timmy's just having fun. I'm, I'm all sad and shit because, you know, I, I killed some chick, so you should comfort me with, with your titties. Let me suck on those titties. Come on. Don't you know what my name is? Like that level of shit, basically. Connor Cook uh, calls his parents, says there's been an accident. Then Alec also calls the Cooks, tells them their son Connor was for sure driving. Tells him, don't worry, though. I'll legally take care of your son. Connor uh, says that when he was pulled from his room for a CAT scan, Alec follows him and tells him, just be quiet. I got you. Just don't say anything. Connor's parents said that while they were in his room, Randolph and Alec both came in and one of them said, you've been named as the driver of the boat. I mean, they're working hard to make him the scapegoat. Connor and his parents suspected pretty quick that the family was trying to pin the accident on Connor, on old Cotton Top, and that they might already be conspiring with law enforcement to plant evidence to that end. That is the Murdoch way. While Morgan was having surgery on her hand, she said Randolph came into her room and just stared at her. Then Alec knocked on her door saying he was now her legal representative. She hadn't, you know, asked him to be so. Alec also told her mom that he was her representation 
and that he was uh, her acting guardian. <laughs> Morgan, good on her, wasn't having that shit. She had figured out by now that this is a family of fucking snakes, vipers. And she asked the nurse to keep him out of her room. Good on her. Randolph also spoke to Miley Altman's mother, Gina. When she asked him if there had been any word about Mallory, he allegedly responded with, who are you talking about? But when she told him Mallory's name, Randolph said, oh, oh, I'm pretty sure we know how that's going to end up. Real cold. As in, yeah, we, we know she's fucking dead. Why are we talking about her? Just a heartless old bastard. Renee Beach was told that night that she was not allowed to go down to the water to see the accident scene. Uh, you know, this is the night her daughter goes missing. But Randolph and Maggie, she watched them go right down to the boat. She said that officers, when they approached, didn't say a damn word. Just lifted up the crime scene tape and let them walk on under. Why the fuck are they doing that with Maggie? Right? She, she's not a solicitor. She doesn't have any, any legal uh, rights to do something like that where somebody else couldn't. But, you know, it's, it's different for the Murdochs. She said in an interview for the Murdoch Murders docuseries, that's when I started to realize the Murdochs, they were more worried about a cover-up than they were about trying to find Mallory. She also said that Maggie, who was not one of her friends, came into her vehicle, sat with her for a few minutes as she is, you know, contemplating her daughter being dead, right? Uh, she, she felt immediately like that Maggie did not do this out of any concern for Mallory, but for appearances. She came in, told her that, uh, you know, uh, Connor was driving the boat. Right, Connor was driving the boat. Everyone agreed on that. Didn't even ask her about Mallory or say anything about her, what she's going through. This family is real fucking hateable. Uh, she said she told Mags to basically get the fuck out of her car. And after a few moments, she did. Michael Brock was the lead DNR investigator, Department of Natural Resources, for the first 24 hours. Also a good friend of the Murdoch family. No conflict of interest there. Anthony Cook said he told Brock straight up while being recorded that Paul Murdoch killed my girlfriend. However, an audio recording of that will never show up as evidence. It just uh, just disappeared. Another DNR agent named Michael Paul Thomas was there. He had a history of getting Paul out of trouble, according to Morgan. She specifically said regarding him, this man was like Alec Murdoch's bitch. Thomas was close friends with Alec's older brother, John Marvin Murdoch. Civil attorney Mark Tinsley later obtained phone records from the night of the crash and the days after showing uh, that John Marvin made numerous calls to Michael Paul Thomas. DNR documents indicate that John Marvin uh, also called Austin Pritchard, the officer who was in the hospital talking to the teens. So the Murdoch clan, all fucking coming together, all working together, circling the wagons to protect their own. The whole family was doing late night damage control. Mom, dad, grandpa, uncle. Uh, John Marvin, who ran a business renting out equipment, also came to the crime scene and was let in and hauled away the fucking boat, which is the active crime scene. While phone records show many calls this night uh, from investigators to the Murdochs, interesting that not a single call was made to the Beach family. Renee confirmed that no one from law enforcement called them the night her daughter was thrown from a fucking boat and couldn't be found. Unreal. Again, in the low country, there's the Murdochs, and then there's a bunch of other people whose lives don't really matter. Three nights after the crash, crash, Alec calls Connor's father, Marty Cook. They were friends when they were young, but had grown apart over the years. He met Alec at the Murdoch Law Firm in Hampton. Alec turned off his phone, said he was, wasn't recording him. He then instructed Marty, you know, pick a room, uh, you know, so you don't feel like you're being recorded or filmed. Why would he think that Marty was worried about being recorded? Maybe because part of the reason, the main reason they had grown apart was due to Marty not trusting Alec. Alec told Marty, I need to know where y'all stand. I can't even mourn the loss of Mallory for worrying about what might happen to my son. 
And by where y'all stand, he is asking, uh, you know, in no uncertain terms, are y'all going to be team players and have your son, Connor, take the fall for Papa? Or are y'all going to be a problem? Are y'all going to be against us and not support Sweet Timmy doing what Sweet Timmy do? Later, Connor was so worried about the repercussions and not doing what Alec and Rupert wanted him to do, he actually asked his dad if he thought the Murdochs were going to kill him, you know, have him killed. In his interview for the Netflix docuseries, Connor said he had heard the Murdochs could make people disappear. Some of the other parents were also concerned that something very off about the way the uh, whole boat crash investigation was going. July 2021, the Post and Courier, a Charleston-based newspaper, reported that officers at the scene never gave Paul the sobriety test, never had his blood alcohol content checked. The hospital did a test, showed that Paul's BAC was over 0.28, three and a half times the legal limit of 0.08. Timmy fucking sauced. DNR records will also later reveal that officers made conflicting reports about whether a sobriety test was even offered. The initial investigator wrote that he instructed an agent to give tests to Paul and Connor, but the same agent wrote he was only told to test Connor and not Paul. Later testified he did not try to test Paul. And right in the report, the investigator wrote that Paul and Connor refused to be tested. But in another statement, the DNR said that both Paul and Connor were taken to the hospital by the time agents got there. They all couldn't keep the story straight because somebody's lying, if not many or most or all of them are lying. Bought and paid for by the Murdoch family. Two fishermen will find Mallory Beach's dead body March 3rd, 2019, about five miles from the crash site. She's identified the next day. Cause of death uh, listed as blunt force trauma to the head and then drowning. So knocked unconscious in the crash and then drowns in the water. Mallory's family say, uh, said that they were grateful to have closure because there are many cases where people go missing in bodies of water and are never found, but still they wondered who is going to be held to some degree of responsibility for her death. Papa? Fucking Timmy? Anyone? Honey nips? Uh, within weeks of the crash, Mallory's mother filed a civil lawsuit against the store that sold Paul the alcohol and also against both Alec Murdoch, who owned the boat, and his older brother, you know, Paul's older brother, uh, Buster, whose ID Paul Murdoch used. Uh, she worked with the aforementioned civil attorney, Mark Tinsley, uh, one of the good attorneys in the story. Uh, Renee later told NBC, what motivated me was getting evidence of everything before it disappeared. I knew who we were up against, as in the Murdochs, and how things would probably disappear if we didn't act quickly. The convenience store denied knowingly and willfully selling alcohol to a minor. The Murdoch family denied all wrongdoing, of course, uh, denied that Buster knowingly gave his ID to Paul. The following month, despite everything his family did to try and weasel him out of any and all trouble, April 18th, 2019, Paul Murdoch is charged with three felony counts, boating under the influence causing death, and two counts of boating under the influence with great bodily injury. Fuck yeah, bro. I'm sure the Murdochs were shook. Wait, wait, what? You're charging one of us with crimes? That's not how this works. Uh, Timmy, Paul, Papa pled guilty to, or not guilty, excuse me, to all charges. If convicted, he would now face up to 25 years in prison. Family now hires a uh, big-time attorney, some dick actually named Dick Harputlian, to defend Paul. The New Yorker described Dick as a powerful state senator and member of the state, or excuse me, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, of course, you know, good friend of the Murdoch family. Uh, I've watched him in a lot of, like, uh, interviews and stuff, uh, a lot of videos online. He seems to me like another soulless dirtbag. I'll defend anyone regardless of how fucking horrible they are and just try to get them off and make as much money as I can, attorney. Just like Alec. 
Paul was released on personal reconnaissance. His case experienced significant delays then, thanks to Dick, and he still had not gone to trial a full two fucking years later. Paul did receive quite a few online threats after the boat crash. Good. But the family didn't think they were credible and worry about them. Uh, This detail, however, will become important later in this story. Uh, The detail of these threats. Buster Murdoch, who graduated from uh, Wooford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina in 2018, still planned to join the family law firm at the time of the crash. But while attending the University of South Carolina School of Law, he gets expelled for plagiarism. Not just suspended, straight up expelled. However, the Post and Courier will report that the family then paid 60 grand to ensure he will be readmitted at a later date. Of course, you throw around enough money and you can fix almost anything, I guess. Why ever let baby boy learn a tough life lesson? Who gives a shit about developing some fucking character? In the spring of 2021, Paul continued having run-ins with law enforcement for offenses like speeding. Uh, Apparently, the boat crash did not deter him from drinking and driving either. Despite not being arrested for any more uh, DUIs, he allegedly did drink and drive constantly. Getting Mallory killed did not seem to phase him in the least. Also, following the crash, Alec and Maggie started reportedly having some marital problems. Bills weren't being paid, and allegedly Maggie hired a forensic accountant to sort out their finances. Then in September of 2021, she reportedly visited a divorce attorney. Meanwhile, the Beach family attorney, Mark Tinsley, still seeking a settlement in the boat crash lawsuit. They're suing for upwards of $15 million. Alec's defense attorney said he could only come up with a million dollars for the settlement, and Tinsley didn't buy that. He offered a payment plan, but Alec's defense objected. Tinsley decided to file a motion to compel the payment plan. If a judge were to rule in his favor, Alec would have uh, would have been forced to reveal his financial information, which scared the shit out of him for reasons you'll see soon. A hearing was uh, on this issue was scheduled for June 10th, 2021, but that hearing will never take place. Not quite. Uh, Soon it will appear that maybe someone else wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, Alec didn't have to disclose his financial situation because that would be very, very bad for him. On the night of June 7th, 2021, three days before Paul's financial, uh, or excuse me, Alec's financial records hearing, Alec Murdoch calls 911 to report that Maggie and Paul had both been fatally shot at the Moselle property. June 7th, quite the day for Alec. That morning, his law firm's CFO, Jeannie Seconder, had confronted him about some missing money. Uh, quite a bit of missing money, specifically $792,000. When she came to his office, Alec apparently gave her a dirty look, which he had never done before, and asked, what do you need now? Then Alec took a call in the middle of their conversation about his father, who was in the hospital with a terminal illness, cancer and heart disease at this time. Seconder later testified that that shifted their conversation. She asked about his family, asked about his dad. Now they started talking to his friends. Jeannie later received a call that day from Alec at 4 p.m., She was under the impression that he was going to the hospital uh, at first when he called, but then he asked her for information on his 401k balances because he was working on financials for Paul's boat accident hearing and probably very worried about the can of worms that hearing could open up. Alec went home in the late afternoon, spent time on the property with Paul. Paul recorded a video of his dad that will later be used against his dad as evidence. Alec took a nap in the house in late afternoon, early evening, woke up around 7.30, Maggie and Paul weren't at the house, so he said, 8.05, he texted them that he was leaving to check on his parents. As mentioned, his dad was in the hospital. His mom, suffering dementia, from from dementia, was with her caretaker at her house, which was about a 20-minute drive from Moselle. Alec got to Moselle around uh, 10 p.m., drove over to the kennels, which are a quarter mile from the house after he comes back from his mom's. 
said that there he finds Maggie and Paul's dead bodies. Alec calls 911 at 10.07 p.m. to report that his wife and son had been shot. Starts the call by saying, this is Alec Murdoch at 4147 Moselle Road. I need the police and an ambulance immediately. Tells the operator, my wife and child have been shot badly. When the first officers get to the crime scene, Alec is recorded saying, it's a long story. My son was in a boat wreck a few months back. I, I know that's what it is. Plan some seeds. I know what this is, officers. My son and my wife, they were murdered by people who felt like Timmy got away with Mallory's death. They're coming for my family. They came for my family. Soon, agents from the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, SLED, arrive at the scene and take over. One of the lead investigators was Agent David Owen, and Owen noted that Alec was wearing a white t-shirt, green shorts, and tennis shoes. Uh, Not the clothes he'd been wearing earlier that day. A little suspicious. He had Alec get into his car with him to talk. Owen put his body cam on to to, uh, record the conversation. Uh, Alec said, um, like, when I came back here, I mean, I, I pulled up and I could see him and, you know, I, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. My, my boy over there, I could, see, I could see his brain. I think I tried to turn Paul over first. His cell phone popped out of his pocket. I, I started to try to do something with thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. Then I went to my wife and I, I mean, I could see he was asked why he went out to the kennels. He explained that he came back from checking on his parents and Maggie and Paul weren't at the house. Alec was asked if he uh, if they'd had any problems recently. He said the only thing that came to the mind his mind was the boat wreck. How several people had uh, said very negative, very threatening things about Paul online. How Paul had allegedly been punched and kicked before. That detail, the punching and kicking, that's new. As in, he might have just made that up right there. Paul told his mom had uh, told his mom he said recently that some people even came up to his ground floor apartment window, called him a murderer. Uh, while Alec is being interviewed. Investigators are processing the crime scene. Paul had been shot twice with a 12-gauge shotgun at close range. Maggie had been shot with an assault rifle, like an AR-15-style rifle, specifically a 300 blackout. Maggie was shot multiple times in the chest and back, once in the head. Then uh, the way she fell made it seem like she was trying to run away from her attacker. Paul had been shot once in the chest and once in the neck and head. Both shotgun blasts took place in the feed room. According to the testimony of Dr. Kenneth Kinsey, uh, later a forensic expert, it was very likely that there was just one shooter, almost certainly. He said that if there had been two people, the shooting would have been much more efficient. The two guns being used seemed to make it look like the shooter was trying to make it seem like two people had been shot. Uh, Paul very likely had died first. As a young man, he probably would have fought back if Maggie was shot first. But who knows with him? Uh, he was standing midway in the feed room when the first uh, when he was shot first. It appeared as though he had walked toward the door of the feed room when the killer shot him again as his upper body was outside the doorway. Maggie was going towards the feed room when she encountered the shooter. Three of the shots that hit her were non-fatal. Maggie seemed to have then badly wounded, gotten on her hands and knees, trying to crawl away, suffered a fatal shot to the chest while in that position. The killer approached her from behind and then also shot her in the top of the head. Now shit starts to fall apart real quick for Alec. Family photos will quickly reveal that Murdoch's owned multiple shotguns and, and this is real bad, bullet casings found uh, at other locations on the Murdoch property that matched the ones found around Maggie's body. Empty boxes of ammo found on the property that were the same brand and type as the one shot at the victims. This all suggested, of course, that she was killed with a family weapon, even though uh, neither murder weapon has ever been found. Alec uh, suddenly 
couldn't account for a couple rifles he had purchased in recent years. <laughs> what do you know? One was a shotgun and one was the 300 blackout. <laughs> Weird. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, he had bought three of those rifles in recent years, this 300 blackout. One for each son, one for himself. And now one of those is missing. Huh, wonder where it went. Two missing murder weapons. Shell casings around the property suggest that the family owned the missing murder weapons. Now Alec can't account for them. Weird. You know what all this amounts up to? A fucking dead giveaway that Alec is probably responsible for the murder of his fucking wife and child. Dead giveaway. Dead giveaway. My never got big testicles because we see this dude every day. Every day. We eat ribs with this dude. But we didn't have a clue that that girl put in that house. She said, please help me get it out. Dead giveaway. Yes, Charles. Yes. Huge fan of Mr. Ramsey. Uh, props to the Gregory brothers for that mix, by the way. <laughs> so many great autotune mixes on their Shmo Yoho YouTube channel. I don't know how to say that. They made up a word for their YouTube channel name. Uh, Alec becomes a suspect in the murders of his wife and son within hours of calling 911 on June 8th, 2021. Initially, many assumed that the murders were revenge for Mallory Beach's death. Just like Alec, I imagine, hoped that they would. Law enforcement now comes to Anthony Cook's workplace, tells him he's a lead suspect, needs an alibi. Well, he has one. Connor Cook, also a suspect, along with Mallory's father, Philip Beach, they also have alibis. Philip said he told investigators he was surprised they hadn't called him even sooner. A sled agent asks Morgan Dowdy for samples of her fingerprints, hair, and spit, and she tells them, do not overlook Alec Murdoch. Right? She knew how cold that fucker was. The police assured the public there was no public danger, but also did not name a suspect. Then a local site called Fitz News reports that Alec is a person of interest. F-I-T-S-N-E-W-S dot com. The claim was dismissed by the Murdoch family. The remaining family is a baseless slur against Alec. Just two days later, June 10th, 2021, Alec's father, Randolph Murdoch III, dies at his home in Hampton County, 81 years old and in poor health. His death creates more intrigue in the case. The financial disclosure hearing scheduled for June 10th now is delayed. Due to the murder, so maybe uh, uh, Alex's plan worked. His super dark and fucked up plan is working to uh, delay investigators looking into his financial records. Alec has a second interview with sled agent David Owen on June 10th. His story is similar to the initial statement he gave the night of the murders, June 7th. Said he left work earlier than normal because Paul was coming home. Said that the two of them rode around the property looking for some hogs to shoot. Didn't find them. Did some target shooting. Then Papa recorded a video of Alec pushing over a small tree. Excuse me, Maggie was uh, out at an appointment, but came over afterwards. They all hung out together at the house in the early evening. Maggie and Paul then went to the dog kennels. Alex said he stayed at the house, fell asleep watching some TV on the couch. When he woke up, he called Maggie. She didn't answer. He then texted her at 9.06, still didn't answer. He now leaves to see his mom almost 14 miles away. Why the fuck did he not go to the kennel first to check on his uh, wife or son if he's worried at all? But he doesn't. Checks on his mom, uh, talks to her caretaker, then heads back, calls some people on the way home. When he gets home, still no one is at the house. So now he drives to the kennels and says he found the bodies and calls 911. Very important to note that he said he had not been at the kennel with either Paul or Maggie prior to their murders, right? At least not that afternoon. June 14th, 2021, the coroner reveals that Maggie and Paul's estimated time of death between 9 and 9.30 p.m. June 17th. Alec Murdoch's brothers, John Marvin, fucking Handy Randy, actually just Randy, spoke to Good Morning America, said they didn't think Alec was involved in the murders. 
Randy said, my brother loved Maggie and Paul like nothing else on this earth, just like he loves Buster. So there's no possible way he could have anything to do with this. I can't assure you. But then he did add, but if Timmy showed up, that motherfucker showed up, all bets are off. But in that case, not only did he probably kill that weird hand fucking straight finger motherfucker, I hope he did. Timmy has needed to be stopped for a long ass while. And if Mags got in the way of Timmy being put down, then she had to go too. Then he fucking ripped off his lavalier mic, slapped one GMA interview, spit in another woman's face, and screamed, the laws of man do not apply to the gods of Murdoch. And he fucking stormed out. Or I made up everything after Randy St. Alec, you know, couldn't have killed him. Uh, June 22nd, 2021. 2021. <laughs> that was a weird way to say it. State officials now announced they were reopening the investigation into the 2015 death of Stephen Smith based on info gathered during the murder investigation of Paul and Maggie. So that's interesting. That's real interesting. June 25th, 2021, Murdoch family announces a $100,000 reward for info, you know, about the killers. Then an hour later, Alec calls his own hotline, tries to claim his own reward money, right? He's like, hey, if I, if I confess to kill my wife and son, can I have the reward money? I really would like to have it. I, I, I want it. I like money. I don't, I don't want to lose it. No. Uh, Alec issued a public statement saying, I want to thank everyone for the incredible love and support that we have received over the past few weeks. Now is the time to bring justice for Maggie and Paul. Buster and I, along with Maggie's mother, father, and our entire family, ask that anyone with helpful information should immediately call the SLED tip line or Crime Stoppers. On August 6th, all charges against Paul Murdoch for the boating uh, you know, uh, accident are officially dropped which makes sense because you you can't convict and incarcerate uh, dead people. August 11th, Alec has another interview with Sled. He came to the station thinking he was just there to get an update on case progress, but instead he gets interviewed again. Agent David Owen wants uh, to ask him some more questions. David questioned Alec about his timeline and the clothing he was wearing in the video Paul took in the afternoon. Alec said he'd been wearing khaki pants and a dress shirt, but then changed clothes before officers arrived. Why would he do that? Why would he change clothes right before the officers arrived? Uh, did he think being covered in his wife and son's blood would be, I don't know, rude? Did he want to make sure his hair was properly styled? You know, in case one of the officers was female and hot since he is back on the market, baby. Uh, Alex said he wasn't sure why or when he changed his clothes. He just, well, he just, he just, he guessed he changed when he got back to the house. Cause you know, people, people change clothes sometimes. It happens. I should add that this guy has a real good memory. One that served him well as a lawyer. But now he, uh, well, he, he doesn't remember. It, it's a mystery. Clothes. Sometimes you have them on. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have on one kind of clothes. And then later you look down and you're like, oh shit, I got different clothes on now. Uh, several weeks later, September 3rd, 2021, Alec Murdoch quietly now resigns from his family's law firm. Then something else super dramatic happens. Next damn day, September 4th, Alec suffers a crazy head injury after a roadside uh, alleged shooting near Varnville, South Carolina. Alec claims he has been shot in the head now. This story just won't quit. Uh, Alec Murdoch calls 911 from the side of the road to report this. Claims that he pulled over on a rural road right just outside of town, gets out of his vehicle to inspect a flat tire. And then some random assailant just pulls up beside him and just shoots him. Because that shit happens all the time out in rural South Carolina, right? One second, you're looking down at a flat tire like, hmm, I wonder how much uh, fucking pressure is in this tire. And the next second, some random motherfucker just fires at your head. And then after barely grazing you, they just drive off. He's really pushing this narrative of everyone hates my family and wants us all dead because of what Paul did on that boat. Which isn't a bad plan, really. Right? He's using his lawyer brain, at least a little, trying to cover up what you will soon see is so many fucking skeletons. 
Later, some people will testify that they saw Alex bleeding a bit, but kept driving because something about the whole scene seemed off. Right? It, it seemed staged. It seemed like a trap. Next day, the authorities said that Alec only suffered a superficial head wound, as in not a bullet wound. Nevertheless, Alec has himself flown to a hospital in Savannah. He's got to be flown there. You got to get treatment immediately. And a lot of people think that was all for show. Then a family spokesperson issues the following statement. Alec had an entry and exit wound. His skull was fractured and it was not a self-inflicted bullet wound. Again, law enforcement did not mention a wound being nearly that serious. No one else mentions that. Just, uh, you know, family fucking spokesperson. Family spokesperson added, Alec pulled over after seeing a low tire indicator light. A male driver in a blue pickup asked him if he had car troubles. As soon as Alec replied, he was shot. Totally. Alec announces his resignation from the law firm publicly now two days later, September 6th. Right? Miraculous. Does this right after a bullet went fucking clean through his big potato head skull. Right? Just fucking shot it right through his fucking brain. And he's like, ah, shake it off. Uh, He does appear to have an enormous head, by the way. As a big-headed sack. I find comfort in seeing other dudes with even bigger heads. Uh, in a statement, the very wounded, right? He's, barely, he's got like 20% of his brain left. The rest was blasted out a few days earlier. The very wounded Alex says, the murders of my wife and son have caused an incredibly difficult time in my life. I have made a lot of decisions that I truly regret, like murdering them. No, he doesn't say that part. He says, I'm resigning from my law firm and entering rehab after a long battle that has been exacerbated by these murders. I'm immensely sorry to everyone I've hurt, including my family, friends, and colleagues. I ask for prayers as I rehabilitate myself and my relationships. No mention here of being badly shot in the head, which is weird. Next day, his former law firm releases a statement saying that Alec resigned on September 3rd and is no longer associated with pimped in any manner. He's no longer a fucking law dog pimp. Uh, his resignation came after the discovery by PMPED that Alec misappropriated funds in violation of PMPED standards and policies. A forensic accounting firm will be retained to conduct a thorough investigation. Randy Murdoch, an attorney still working at, at Pimp, a, a law dog pimp, still working today, released a statement saying he was shocked to learn about the settling of money and his brother's drug addiction. He said, I love my firm family and also love Alec as my brother. While I still support him in his recovery, I do not support, condone, or excuse his conduct in stealing by manipulating his most trusted relationships. I will continue to pursue my client's interests with the highest degree of honesty and integrity as I always have. On September 8th, South Carolina Supreme Court indefinitely suspends Alex's law license. Week later, September 14th, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division sled again reveals that Alec admitted to asking his friend Curtis Edward Smith to shoot and kill him on September 4th so that his son Buster could collect a $10 million life insurance policy. Reminds me of grandpa. Grandpa in the train, right? Grandpa got runned over on the train tracks, get his family insurance money, and now Alec thinking about taking a bullet for the same reason. 61-year-old Curtis Edward Smith was now arrested and charged with assisted suicide, assault and battery of a high aggravated nature, pointing and presenting a firearm, insurance fraud, and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. Smith, who uh, goes by the name of Eddie, claims he met Alec back in the late 80s, early 90s, said he knew Alec's father, became friends with Alec, did some work for him, mostly landscaping at first. Then he also, according to hearsay, uh, became Alec's drug supplier. Eddie said that on the day of the shooting, Alec called him around 10, 10.30 in the morning, asked to meet him at the funeral home in Varnville. When he arrived, he said Alex was hiding his face with the sun visor in his car, told him he didn't need to be seen in town because he was being watched by SLED because of, quote, what happened. Eddie asked, well, what did happen? 
And Alec told him, allegedly, things just got all fucked up. Sounds suspicious. Sounds like a possible admission of guilt. Then supposedly asked Eddie if he loved him. And Eddie said, yes. At which point Alec said, I need you to shoot me and kill me. Eddie now said, no. So Alec said, well, I guess I'll go and try to do it myself. And then took off in his vehicle. Eddie reported that he followed because he's worried about Alec, worried that he's really going to kill himself. He then described pulling up uh, to Alec and Alec approaching with the gun. Eddie said, he, you know, he took the gun from him, fired it up in the air to, quote, scare some sense into him, and Alec hit the ground. He claimed that Alec's minor head injury was caused not by a bullet, but by falling on some rocks on the side of the road. Gives him a little scratch. Eddie asked Alec why he wanted him to shoot him, and Alec reportedly said, because they're going to be able to prove that I was responsible for Maggie and Paul. If he did say that, that is admission of guilt. Eddie said he then went home without reporting anything because he didn't shoot Alec and neither one of them were severely injured. But I guess he didn't think to call the police and say, hey, this guy just confessed to some murders. All versions of this story are so stupid. What's even happening here? About a week later, sled agents come to ask Eddie uh, some questions and he realizes Alec is now blaming him for the shooting that according to Eddie, wasn't a shooting. Eddie went on to give an interview for the Murdoch Murders docuseries where he was asked if he was Alec's drug dealer. He said no, but then discussed uh, some interesting errands he ran for Alec. Said it all started in late 2015, early 2016, when Alec had an envelope that needed to be delivered to Buford. Eddie threw it on a seat, heard some rattling, maybe like a pill bottle, pill bottle was in it. Uh, didn't look inside the envelope and just assumed he would take it to the law offices in Buford. Made 200 bucks for driving, hour and a half. Now he claimed that Alec continued paying him to go to various small airports in South Carolina and Georgia, meeting people, making deliveries, all very shady said that most people in Alex's immediate family knew he had a drug problem, but never really talked about it. Eddie admitted that he cashed a, a lot of checks for Alec over a 10-year period. Asked Alec if he was laundering money, but Alec assured him that the checks came from his account. That's weird. Eventually, Eddie claimed that he had told Alec that he didn't want to run errands for him anymore, and then Alec was not cool with this. Uh, he said that in a threatening tone, Alec asked him if his daughter Nicole was still working at the Medical University of South Carolina. As in, man, sure would be tragic. Sure would, sure would be terrible. Something really bad happened to your daughter because, you know, you decided that we weren't friends anymore. And thus, you're my enemy now, type shit. Eddie said that Alec never made a direct threat, but it was definitely implied. Eddie also received a cashier's check not long before the murders of Maggie and Paul for around 25 grand. Was he paid to help kill him? Dispose of the weapons? Be a lookout? Pull the trigger? Who knows? September 15th, 2021, SLED now announces they have opened an investigation into the death of Gloria Satterfield. All kinds of shit coming out, right? The, the chicken's coming home to roost. In the words of suck first attorney, uh, Rooster Bogle, Alex is looking cock-a-doodle-doomed. County coroner Angela Topper went back through old records, found Gloria's death suspicious. Her death was ruled natural, even though she was a healthy person who suddenly had some kind of trip and fall incident, which wasn't exactly natural. No autopsy was done. Coroner Topper wrote to SLED asking for an investigation now. Alex's attorney released a statement in response to this announcement, kind of, or at least maybe to distract from this announcement. On September 15th, old Dick, Dick Harputlian, fucking weird-ass name, uh, Alex's attorney tells the Today Show that the vast majority of stolen money from Alex's law firm is, was used to buy opioids. They revealed that Alex had been addicted to opioids for 20 years and his suicide plot was the result of his suffering. Excuse me, after Maggie and Paul were murdered. Uh, additionally, Alec told sled agents that his primary supplier was Curtis Edward Smith. Oh, Eddie. Alec said he was trying to stop using drugs when he began thinking about suicide. So how much truth is there to all this? Uh, how much of this was, was tossed out to make Alec uh, appear like a victim 
a victim of opioid addiction and not a heartless killer of his wife and child. Uh, like he can't be both. That same day, the sons of Gloria Satterfield now filed a lawsuit against Alec Murdoch, Corey Fleming, and others at Alec's firm, alleging that they stole millions from the family. This next bit's so dirty. Back in October of 2019, Mandy Matney, we'll talk about her at the very end of the episode, a reporter, a great reporter for the Island Packet, wrote that she found a wrongful death settlement in the case of Gloria Satterfield. Matney had been looking through court documents about the family, discovered that over $500,000 had been awarded to Gloria's sons, Tony and Brian. When Tony read her article, he was shocked because he and his brother were never told about this settlement that was two years old. They weren't given a fucking dime. Can you imagine? After Gloria died, Alec approached her sons, said that he would help them sue himself. You heard that right. Alec would help them sue Alec so they could get a payout from Alec's insurance company. Sounds a bit like insurance fraud. Uh, recommended a lawyer named Corey Fleming, but conveniently left out the detail that he and Corey were good friends, old scam buddies. So much corruption in this area, right? Did this area have like a, a single decent lawyer? Tony and Brian Satterfield will later hire attorneys Eric Bland, Ronnie Richter, and Ronnie Richter after they learned about the settlement in the paper. But originally Bland told the New Yorker that in the fall of 2018, their first attorney, Corey Fleming, learned that Alex's insurance, Alex's insurance company had paid in full on Alex's policy. Uh, Fleming was required to inform the personal representative of the estate about the settlement. Tony should have been that representative, but uh, they replaced him with someone in their pocket. Alec and Corey Fleming told Tony that the case was getting complicated and that, excuse me, he should let a professional banker become the representative of Gloria's estate. They recommended Russell Lafitte from Palmetto State Bank, who did business with the law firm. Another buddy, another very corrupt friend. According to the New Yorker, Russell Lafitte had accommodated and profited from numerous unusual financial dealings with Alec. In earlier transactions, Lafitte had played the part of the personal representative. But in this instance, it was Vice President Chad Westendorf who would sign on. Westendorf had no experience acting as head of an estate. His job now was to know nothing and say nothing to the Satterfield family. A new fucking good old boy brought into the fold to make some dirty money. Pimped, Murdaugh's law firm, uh, had worked with an Atlanta-based insurance company called Forge Consulting in the past. And that old law dog pimp Alec had opened at least two doing business as accounts with Bank of America using the name Forge which is funny, like forgery. When the settlement check in this case was issued, Fleming took some hefty fees for himself in Westendorf and then sent $403,500 to a forge account. It's possible that this fucker's wife killed their mom or that his son did. Then he pretended to be looking out for them, acting like they should get a lot of insurance money. And then he steals that money. This guy has no soul. These kids, by the way, her kids, very fucking impoverished. Cut to the days following Maggie and Paul's murders now. Alec's firm dropping him, looking into financial crimes. Now Tony and Brian Satterfield's new attorney, Eric Bland, starts pressing the police. They need to open a criminal investigation into the stolen settlement money. And then Eric, doing his own digging, learns about another even bigger insurance scam. Alec had a liability policy with Nautilus Insurance Company that paid him a $3.8 million settlement after Gloria died. Money that was supposed to have gone to her family but doesn't. They see none of it. He double fucks her kids out of over $4 million in insurance money. Bland later told the New Yorker, if Alec had just told the brothers he'd won them a $25,000 settlement, they'd have thought he hung the moon, but he stole every cent. How fucked is that? Could have at least played the part of the hero. 
give them 25 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand out of over 4 million in stolen money, but he gives them nothing. Making all of this even more gross, Bland noted that Alec had this money when Brian Satterfield lost his home to foreclosure. Did nothing to help him. Oh, did I mention that Brian is cognitively impaired? And that he was earning 14,000 fucking dollars a year working at the grocery store? This rich, entitled, slimy fucking parasite let this guy's home be taken away from him after stealing millions from him. When all this comes to light, Nautilus now files a lawsuit against Alec. He denies the claims in the lawsuit, but agrees to repay the family. Looks a little guilty. Because of all this shit, now investigators start looking into other insurance settlements involving Alec, which will eventually lead to over 100 financial charges against him. Yikes. Attorney Ronnie Richter told the Murdoch Murders documentary team, you don't lose your virginity at $4.3 million. Alec Murdoch has misappropriated millions and millions of dollars, and it's a fraud that began in 2015 and was a vehicle to steal the Satterfield's money in 2019. Yeah, the Satterfield scam's not his first rodeo. September 16th, 2021, Alec Murdoch now arrested, not for murder, but charged with fraud and conspiracy for his suicide plot. Alec granted bond September 18th, ordered to surrender his passport, ordered to return to rehab. Judge orders that he be arrested immediately if he leaves the rehab facility. October 6th, Murdoch firm, pimped, now sues Alec, alleging he funneled stolen money into a fake bank account. October 14th, Alec arrested in Florida after being released from the rehab facility. Now charged with two felony counts of obtaining property by false pretenses in the Gloria Satterfield case. November 4th, Curtis Edward Smith indicted by the Hampton County Grand Jury for false claim for payment, filing a false police report, conspiracy, pointing and presenting a firearm at a person, assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature, and assisted suicide. November 18th, Curtis uh, now indicted by a Colleton County Jury, Grand Jury for possession of methamphetamine with intent to distribute and possession of marijuana following a search of his home. Maybe he really was Alex Dealer. Uh, the grand jury also alleged a criminal conspiracy regarding 437 checks worth $2.4 million for Murdoch to Smith between October 7th, 2013 and February 28th, 2021. Maybe he was a lot more than Alex Dealer. November 19th, Alec now indicted on 27 additional counts, including breach of trust with fraudulent intent, obtaining signature by property by false pretenses, money laundering, computer crimes, and forgery, charged with defrauding victims of and laundering almost $4.9 million. December 9th, 2021, the state attorney general announces more charges against Alec, including nine counts of breach of trust with fraudulent intent, seven counts of computer crimes, four counts of money laundering, one count of forgery. He's a sinking fucking ship. Among the many victims of the money laundering scheme were some family friends. By this point, Alec is facing 48 financial charges. December 13, 2021, a judge sets Alec's bond at $7 million. And Alex speaks publicly for the first time in months. He said, my head is on straighter. I'm thinking cleaner than I have in a long, long time. And I want to deal with these charges appropriately and head on. Oh, buddy, these charges, just the tip of the iceberg. Month later, January 21st, 2022, Alec indicted on 23 more charges, including breach of trust with fraudulent intent and computer crimes. Now faces 71 charges, accused of stealing 8.5 million over a period of 11 years. And they're still not done. The Murdoch family fortune and the power and prestige associated with it just being flushed down the toilet by one person. January 24th, 2022, Mallory Beach's family files a legal claim against the estates of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. 
Two of the survivors joined their legal claim. No more fearing the Murdoch's power. Time to get in and get paid. March 16th, 2022, a grand jury indicts Alice on four more financial crime charges related to a scheme to defraud multiple insurance companies and others. This scheme involved his friend and fellow corrupt as fuck attorney, Corey Fleming. May 4th, another four charges related to financial crimes announced against Alec. June 3rd, (laughs) the police announced their intention to exhume Gloria Satterfield's body with her family's permission. June 24th, Eddie arrested on four counts of money laundering, three counts of forgery, criminal conspiracy. June 28th, Alec and Curtis, Eddie, indicted by the South Carolina State Grand Jury on still more shit, (laughs) two conspiracy and narcotics counts. Murdoch and Smith accused of conspiring to purchase and distribute oxycodone uh, in Colleton County from October 2013 all the way to September 2021, where they got some fucking drug ring going. Uh, By this point, the 16 indictments against Alec Murdoch contain 81 charges. July 13th, 2022, South Carolina Supreme Court formally disbars Alec. Then the very next day, July 14th, 2022, Alec Murdoch indicted on the most serious charge yet, two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Maggie and Paul. When Alec was indicted, local outlet Fitz News and others reported that a video from Paul's cell phone proved that Alec was at the Moselle Kennels at 8.44 p.m. when he said he was away from home visiting his mom right before they were killed. I watched this video. Pretty chilling. To hear him talk like nothing's wrong minutes before he did what he did. August 19th, (laughs) still more charges. Alec indicted nine more charges related to money laundering and computer crimes. Charges alleged he stole money from the firm in late 2020 and in 2021. And that in 2017 and 2018, he took advantage of an error by the firm's accounting office. The error sent uh, $121,358 to him for loan repayment. Money that should have gone to his brother, and a fellow lawyer at the firm. There's no one this guy won't fuck over and or kill. His brother is now suing him as well. October 13th, uh, the state attorney general's office sets Alex's trial date for January 23rd, 2023 at the Carlton County Courthouse in Walterboro, South Carolina before the trial judge Clifton Newman orders that a portrait of Alex's grandfather, Randolph Sr., be removed from the courtroom to ensure a fair trial and maybe also a little fuck you to Alex. Your family's done here, sir. Prosecutor Creighton Walters described Alec's motive during a hearing December 9th, 2022, saying that Alec was desperate to escape accountability for mounting financial crimes, said that he killed his wife and son to try and cover them up in order to gain public sympathy, buy himself more time to hopefully move some puzzle pieces around, continue to get away with running all these fucking rackets. That arrogant fuck still thought he might be able to get out of all this. And why wouldn't he think that, right? He'd been raised similar to how he raised Papa. He'd been raised to never have to face the music for mistakes. Pretty hypocritical for a family that made their fortune punishing the mistakes of others. Also, how fucking cold-blooded is someone who's willing to execute their wife and son so that they can maybe get away with some financial crimes? There were rumors that he was having an affair. Maybe he wanted to be uh, with somebody else. Also, he increasingly saw his son as a reckless liability. Maybe thought he could get rid of two problems and have their deaths help him with some other problems. Just a true sociopath. Walter said in court, I think when this case started, a lot of people assumed this was a murder case and then with some white collar crime running in there. But the reality is, as we've done this extensive investigation, we've realized that this was a white collar case 
that culminated with two murders. Well said. Waters said, I may have called him Walters. If I did, uh, it's Waters. Waters said that Alex started stealing money when he uh, had some land deals go south back in 2007, 2008. Then when the Beach family files their massive lawsuit against Alex for Paul's drunken boating wreck, he was, quote, on a hamster wheel of constantly having to borrow and earn and steal just to keep kicking the can down the road and to stay above water. The defense questioned why he would shift a financial investigation away from himself in order to avoid scrutiny and put himself in the middle of a murder investigation. In one defense motion, they claimed that Curtis Smith, Eddie, failed a polygraph test where he was asked if he was present during the murders or knew anything about them. In a court filing, the defense claimed that Eddie regularly dropped drugs off at the kennels. This seemed to imply that he could have killed Maggie and Paul because they saw him with the drugs. But even if Eddie did do it, he would have done it because Alec told him to do it. December 16, 2022, a state grand jury indicted Alec on still more shit. Never fucking ends with this asshole. They hit him with nine counts of tax evasion now. The charges allege that he failed to pay approximately $487,000 in state income taxes when he made almost $14 million over a nine-year period. That doesn't count the money he stole. This brings his total to 101 state financial charges and total theft to about $8.8 million. December 20th, 2022, prosecutors announced they will not be seeking the death penalty due to the cost and complexity of death penalty cases, the uncertainty at the time of executions in South Carolina, and the length of the trial. Alec Murdaugh's long-awaited double murder trial begins January 23rd, 2023. Jury selection finished the next day. January 24th, uh, that's that next day, judge also approves a settlement between the Beach family and the estate of Maggie Murdoch. It was determined that Buster Murdoch would receive a $500,000 share of his mom's estate, but the rest will be divided amongst the survivors of the boat crash. Opening statements take place January 25th. Lead prosecutor Creighton Waters tells the jury that the state will rely on forensic and other physical evidence to prove Alec was the killer. Alec stole millions from his clients. His crimes are going to be exposed. So he killed his wife and child to gain public sympathy and stop the embezzlement from becoming public knowledge. Waters said, Listen to that gathering storm that all came to a head. The evidence is going to be such that you're going to reach the inescapable conclusion that Alec murdered Maggie and Paul, that he was the storm, that the storm was coming for them, and the storm arrived on June 7th, 2021. I like this Waters guy. That was, that was poetry. Dude's a wordsmith. Hail Nimrod. Get him, Crate. Get that storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waters revealed that a key piece of evidence was a video from Paul's cell phone taken less than five minutes before he was killed. Alec can be heard in the background. 8.49 p.m., both Maggie and Paul's phones locked and neither one of them answered any calls or texts. Within minutes of the murders, Alec then called Maggie twice, texted her to tell her he was going to check on his mom, left shortly after 9 p.m., spent 20 minutes at her home with a caretaker. Why did Alec do that? To try and cover up the murders, to give himself an alibi. Also made five more calls as he drove to and from his mom's house, right? Continued to try to manufacture this alibi. Imagine being the defendant. If you did do all this, try now not to reveal to the jury that you are fucking panicking. Just sitting there in your head and be like, shit, shit, shit. That's exactly what I did. God damn it. Creighton Waters is good. He's real good. When analyzing cell phone activity, investigators found that Alex's final text to Maggie was, call me, babe. Sent to the love of his life, mother of his two kids, woman he had killed not even an hour earlier. Woman he had been married to for 28 years. All in an attempt to hide his long list of financial crimes. That dude is so cold-blooded. Or, or you know what? Maybe, maybe Maggie just consistently refused to submit. She just wasn't subservient enough. I would, I would understand that, right? 
you know, sometimes the people don't submit, Lindsay. Things happen to them, you know? No. <laughs> uh, Alec, she's, she's in the office. I was hoping she would hear that. Uh, Alec arrived at the house just after 10 p.m. and discovered the crime scene. He tried to throw off investigators by suggesting Paul was targeted because of the boat crash, like we went over earlier. Defense attorney Dick Harpootlian, I can't get over his name. It's a weird name combination. Uh, went into graphic detail in his opening statement, telling the jury that Alec found Paul lying in his own blood with his brain lying at his feet. He said investigators prematurely concluded that Alec must be guilty without forensics, without cell phones, without any of that. They just decided. Um, Harpulian told the jury he didn't kill Butcher, his son and wife. And you need to put that from your mind and you, and you need to put from your mind any suggesting that he did. Harpulian called the state's theories speculation. Question the two videos from Paul's phone which showed the family having a nice time at Moselle. Harpulian said the cell phone records would indicate he would have had less than 10 minutes to kill them. Get up to the house, get in the car and crank it up. He'd be covered in blood. Yeah, he probably was. That's probably why he changed his clothes. Harpulian also noted that Alec's white t-shirt had no blood on it, as was previously alleged, and questioned where the bloody clothes would be if Alec was the killer. But again, he changed them. Uh, February 1st, 2023, prosecutors played uh, the never-before-seen video from Paul's phone. Both Maggie and Alec can be heard in the background of the video discussing whether another dog had a chicken or a, or a guinea in his mouth. Rogan Gibson, the dog's owner, testified that he last spoke to Paul at 8.40 p.m. about the puppy. Paul tried to FaceTime him, but the signal was weak at Moselle, so he decided to take a video instead. Rogan testified that he heard three voices in the video, Paul, Maggie, and Alec. Points to Alec in the courtroom. Rogan texted Paul at 8.49 to ask him to take a picture of the dog's tail. Paul didn't answer. Texted Paul an hour later, still received no response. When he talked to the police the day after the murders, he said there was that he was 99% sure he heard Alec in the background when he spoke to Paul on the phone. It, it appears he spoke to Paul just minutes before Alec, you know, gunned him down. About a dozen friends and family would also identify Alec's voice in the video. And Alec sounds so calm. It's probably high as fuck. February 6th, Elizabeth Murdoch's caretaker, Shelly Smith, now testifies against Alex. Shelly confirmed she was at Alex's mom's house the night of June 7th. Alec called around 9.30 p.m., said he was outside, so she let him in. Alec wanted to tell his mom that Randolph, her husband, you know, his dad, was in the hospital, but she was asleep. She said she noticed that Alec was acting very strange and very fidgety. The two watched TV together for a few minutes, then he left. Then the next day, he comes back to the house to talk to her and says, quote, if someone asks you that I was there, just say I was here about 30 to 40 minutes. This uh, bothered Shelly because she said this wasn't true. Alex was at the house for no more than 20 minutes, right? Why would he ask her that? Seems suspicious to her. Shelly also testified that she saw Alec bring a blue something, looked like a tarp into, her mom, into his mom's house nine days after the murders. Uh, February 7th, the jury learns that gunshot residue found on the t-shirt and shorts Alec was wearing, but not his shoes. Uh, the gunshot residue found on the inside of his rain jacket, a rain jacket he dropped off at his mom's house. Did he change shoes? Because he had blood all over him? Also, sled agents found that blue tarp at his mom's house. Uh, not sure exactly how that was involved in the murders, though. They couldn't figure that out. Sled agent Megan Fletcher testified that a large amount of gunshot residue was found inside the jacket, though, which was consistent with firing the gun while wearing the jacket inside out or being wrapped around a recently fired weapon. Very damning. Uh, Murdoch family housekeeper Blanca uh, Turiarde Simpson. Blanca testifies against Alec on February 10th. She'd known the Murdochs for decades. Uh, she met Alec in the late 90s because she was doing Spanish translation in court. Then she met Maggie. Maggie needed help with the kids. 
Over the years, Blanca became close friends with Maggie, and Blanca testified that in the months before her death, Maggie told her she was very worried about a potential $30 million lawsuit over the boat crash. Maggie reportedly said, we don't have that kind of money. If I could give them everything that I got and make this go away, I would do that in a heartbeat. I'd start over. We could start over. I just want it gone. Maggie also said that Alec didn't tell her everything, and she thought Alec was not being truthful about the lawsuit. According to Blanca, Maggie woke up around 6.30, uh, 7 a.m. on June 7th. Maggie called her on her way to work, texted her uh, uh, to ask her to buy some Capri Suns for Alec. Why not? Enjoy some thirst-quenching sugary drinks after you murder your family. Blanca heard Alec in the background of the phone call. Malik had a doc- Maggie had a doctor's appointment, so she didn't see her when she got to the house. Alec came out of his room an hour after the call, wearing khakis and his blue blazer, seemed jittery, and it looked like he was wearing his clothes the night before and hadn't fixed his hair, maybe stressing out over what he's about to do. Blanca fixed his collar. Alex said uh, he would see her later. Maggie now texted Blanca that Alex's dad was in the hospital with pneumonia. She told Maggie to pray about it and take some time to rest. In her docu-series interview, Blanca said that Maggie had been staying at the Adesto house because they were doing work to prepare for the 4th of July, but Alec wanted her to come back to Moselle that day. Later that day, Blanca cooked dinner, cleaned up, and left the house. Blanca expected Maggie to call her in the evening whenever she would cook for Maggie. Maggie would normally call her to tell her how the food tasted, but she didn't do that that night, and Blanca found that odd. Alec then called Blanca around 6.30 a.m. the next day. He said, B, they're gone. They're gone. He told her Maggie and Paul were dead, and she was in total shock. Still, Alec asked her to come over and straighten up the house because a lot of people are going to come by. Told her not to drive through the kennels because sled agents were out there. Blanca said no and questioned her when she got to the property, saw her go into the house. She saw that pots from dinner were not in the sink. They were in the fridge, which she found odd uh, because the family had never done that before. She saw Maggie's pajamas laid out in the middle of the doorway, all neat, which she found abnormal. Finally, August 20th, 2021, Alec told Blanca he needed to talk to her. He asked her, what was he wearing on the day of the murders? which she found to be an odd question. Blanca did remember what he was wearing, but didn't want to tell him anything because she thought now that he is trying to set her up somehow, you know, make her have her, you know, be part of an alibi that she didn't want to be part of or something. Alec kept pushing her to tell him. And she just finally said, "Uh, I got this bad feeling. She wasn't about to help him get away with murder. So she won't tell him. Maggie's sister, Marion Proctor testifies on February 14th that Alec didn't seem concerned for his own safety after the murders, which she found very odd. I mean, if somebody had just killed his son and wife because of the way the family dealt with Paul, uh, his boating accident that left Mallory Beach dead, shouldn't he now be worried they're going to come back for him? He talked about wanting to clear Paul's name, she said, and mentioned plans to get Buster back in law school. She thought it was odd that he never once talked about trying to find the killer. He said clearing Paul's name was his number one goal. Marion would testify, my number one goal was to find out who killed my sister and Paul. I don't know how he could have thought about anything else. Well, easy. He knew who the killer was. He was the killer. She said the family initially feared the killer would now go after Alec and Buster, but then their opinion about Alec changed in September following his initial arrest for the insurance scam and being fired from the law firm when he was told he would no longer be a law dog pimp. Marion testified that Maggie was happy, that her marriage was good but not perfect before her murder. Outside the jury's presence, she testified that Maggie suspected Alec had an affair in 2007. She kicked Alec out of the house for a while, but then they worked things out. Or maybe they didn't. Uh, Buster now testifies, Buster Murdoch, for the defense on February 21st. Buster testifies that the family kept a lot of guns at the Moselle property. And that his brother Paul, uh, you know, often left guns out 
or in his unlocked truck. So, so who knows? Could have grabbed who could have grabbed the guns and used them on his brother and mother. Man, this poor kid. I do feel sorry for Buster. Imagine losing your whole family like this. His mom, his only brother killed. His grandpa dies a few days later. Then his dad's on trial for killing his mom and brother. Buster said that his dad called him at 9, 10 p.m. while he was on the way to see uh, his grandma. He sounded normal and the family often called each other from the car. So none of this is unusual. Uh, Buster said that the family was doing well in the days leading up to the shootings. But maybe they weren't. Blanca said the family was dealing with a lot of issues right before the murders. She talked to Maggie the weekend before she died and Paul, uh, Maggie told her that Paul had gotten in trouble for driving a boat drunk again. Damn. He was stopped by the DNR and his alcohol was confiscated. Maggie said that Alec was going to take care of it, make sure fucking baby boy didn't get in trouble. Just enable, enable, enable. Alec uh, Murdoch begins his testimony on February 23rd. After his defense team presented weeks of pretty flimsy possibilities that somebody else must have done it. Alec denies shooting Maggie and Paul, but admits to lying about his alibi. He now admits that his voice was heard in the video from Paul's phone. Yep, that was me. Meaning that he was at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. Him not being there was a very important part of his defense strategy initially. When asked now why he lied, he gave a now infamous quote. He said, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But once I told the lie, I had to keep lying. Who's this fucker think he is, Billy Shakes? Alec blamed lying on his addiction to painkillers, saying it caused paranoid thinking. On the stand, Alec also admitted to stealing money from his clients, saying, I did a lot of damage. I wrecked a lot of havoc. Or, yeah, he said it wrecked, actually. I think it's supposed to be wreaked, but whatever. There's no question. He also admitted to changing out of his blue dress shirt into his t-shirt directly following the deaths of Maggie and Paul. And he just kind of acted like that was not a big deal. Like, you know, people, they change clothes all the time. What's the big deal about me changing clothes at that time? He acted like the prosecution was making a, a mountain out of a molehill. This is a non-issue. Uh, the longer the trial dragged on, the more guilty he looked. March 1st, following a flimsy two-shooter, two-shooter theory presented by the defense that was quickly shot down, pun not intended, by the prosecution, uh, the jury visited Moselle after the defense argued it would be beneficial for them to all see it. In his closing argument, prosecutor Creighton Waters will tell the jury, this defendant has fooled everyone. Everyone, everyone who thought they were close to him, everyone who thought they knew who he was, he's fooled them all. He fooled Maggie and Paul too, and they paid for it with their lives. Don't let him fool you too. Again, I like this guy's style. Well worded. That's perfect. Yeah, don't be fooled. All the evidence points to one guy doing shady shit for years right under everyone's noses, and the murders were, in a way, more of the same for Alex. Fuck, dead giveaway that he did it. Dead giveaway. I love the dead testicles part of that. Uh, Waters argued that Alec was the only person who had the motive, who had the means, who had the opportunity to commit these crimes and that his guilty conduct after these crimes betrays him. Also told the jury that Alec was someone who was good at lying and knew how jurors would react to elements of a case saying, this is an individual who was trained to understand how to put together cases, complex cases. He's been a prosecutor. He's given closing arguments to juries before. So when you have a defendant like that, be thinking about whether or not this individual is constructing defenses and alibis. Yeah. Waters recounted the timeline of cell phone activity the day of the murders. He questioned why an innocent and reasonable father and husband would lie about the last time he saw his family. That's a damn good question. 
The defense argued that the state failed to meet its burden of proof and investigators failed miserably by deciding Alec was responsible and never looking at anyone else. Defense attorney Jim Griffin pointed out evidence that was not collected from the crime scene. He said that the state had failed to investigate hair found in Maggie's hand, to take fingerprint evidence, examine footwear and tire impressions, or test DNA on the victim's clothing. But did they not do all that so they could frame Alex? Or did they not do all that so they could try and help this motherfucker get away with more shit after some of them had quite possibly, probably, certainly helped him get away with so much shit for years prior? Griffin questioned the state's motive telling the court, even if the financial day of reckoning was impending, even if it was right there, he would have not killed the people he loved the most in the world. There's no evidence that he would do that. Uh, Yeah, there is. March 2nd, 2023, after just three hours of deliberation, not very long in a murder trial at all, the jury finds Alec Murdoch guilty of two counts of murder and two counts of possession of a weapon during a violent crime. Attorney General Alan Wilson said outside the courthouse that the verdict proved no one in society is above the law. Doesn't matter how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. Finally, hell Nimrod, right? Finally, this corrupt as fuck family is being taken down. March 3rd, Alec receives two consecutive life sentences. Judge Clifton Newman speaks to Alex for about 20 minutes. At one point saying, over the past century, your family, including you, have been prosecuting people here in this courtroom, and many have received a death penalty, probably for lesser conduct. Alec then finally said at his sentencing, yes, your honor, yes, I have acted dishonorably and brought shame to my family, my family's legacy, and to the entire legal profession, but I didn't kill anyone. Someone who looks like me and talks like me did kill them, but that person was not me, not the real me. As an addict, I truly was not myself. And in an addiction sense, I did kill my sweet boy or my lovely wife. Well, I did not kill my sweet boy or my lovely wife. Exactly. They were instead murdered by Whipple. Spoiled, rotten, rich, and title fucks edition. For 20 fucking years, I was drinking Whipple for breakfast, more Whipple for lunch, still more Whipple for dinner, dessert. And stop fucking looking at me or I'll have you killed. You know the fuck I am. Whipple was corroding my mind, Your Honor, and I loved every goddamn minute of it. If I'm never let out of my cell, I'll do a full Whipple transfusion and replace every last drop of my probably inbred blood with 30% swamp crank, 40% cocaine, 20% more cocaine, 93% Adderall, 210% daddy's money, 350% granddaddy's money, and 6% sweet tea for some good old boy flavor. And I will fuck your face clean off your skull, Your Honor. Fuck you. Fuck your family. Already fucked my family. And drink Whipple! Spoiled Rotten Rich Town Fucks Edition. A proud subsidiary of Bear Evil Incorporated. I got my heart rate up. Has there ever been a story more appropriate for a Whipple mention? Uh, now for what Alec really said at his sentencing. <laughs> he said, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never under any circumstances hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never under any circumstances hurt my son, Papa. Judge Newman asked Alec, and I love this. Remind me of the expression you gave on the witness stand. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. What did you mean by that? Alec responded, I meant when I lied, I continued to lie. And then Newman continued, it might not have been you. It might have been the monster. You've become when you take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. I've seen that before. 
The person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it is the same individual. As a member of the legal community and well-known member of the legal community, you've practiced law before me and we've seen each other on various occasions throughout the years. And it was especially heartbreaking for, for me to see you going from being a grieving father who lost a wife and son to being a person indicted and convicted of killing them. And you've engaged in such duplicitous conduct here in the courtroom, here on the witness stand, and as established by the testimony. He said that several witnesses put Alec at the crime scene, which necessitated more lies and continue to lie. He said, within your own soul, you have to deal with that. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. Alec then responded, all day and every night. Newman finished with, they will continue to do so. A gregarious, friendly person caused their life to be tangled in such a web, such a situation that you yourself spun. And it's so unfortunate because you had such a lovely family. Another wordsmith. Fucking love it. Some real poets in this suck. A couple more quick things now, and then we're done with this timeline. Alec Murdoch filed a notice to appeal March 9th of this year. Uh, March 21st, SLED confirmed they're now investigating the death of Stephen Smith as a homicide. That's awesome. As mentioned, SLED reopened the investigation into his death in June of 2021 when they reviewed uh, South Carolina Highway Patrol's case notes and found that the agency did not believe Mr. Smith's death was a hit and run by a motor. His mother, Sandy Smith, and her lawyers said they believed Stephen was killed somewhere else and then dropped off on the road. Sandy raised over $80,000 to have her son exhumed for an independent autopsy. SLED was present to gather evidence. Buster Murdoch issued a statement about the rumors that he was involved, uh, saying, Before, during, and since my father's trial, I have been targeted and harassed by the media and followers of this story. This has gone on far too long. These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death, and my heart goes out to the Smith family. Yeah, but what if he fucking did kill Stephen? What if his brother Paul helped? What if Buster also gets charged with murder at some point going forward? What if Maggie did kill the housekeeper, a family of murderers? It's possible. A lot of people in Hampton County seem to think it's likely. March 31st, state correction officials announced that Alec had been moved into protective custody in an undo in an undisclosed location for safety reasons. Oh, yeah. Not surprised. Somebody, probably a lot of somebody's wanted to shank that motherfucker. Imagine the hell he is in right now. I wonder how many inmates around him are guys he either helped send to prison, guys his father, maybe grandfather sent to prison, guys whose own fathers and grandfathers were sent to prison by members of his family. There's no way he's going to fucking survive the length of his sentence and die of natural causes. If he doesn't take himself out, somebody else is going to take him out. March 22nd this year, the Moselle property sells for $3.9 million. Money from the sale dispersed to the family of Mallory Beach and others wronged in some way by Murdoch's crimes. Buster gets $530,000. Following month, Stephen Smith's body exhumed for a second autopsy. Full results have not yet been made public. May 1st, Alex's uh, lawyers revealed that he had invented the critical facts surrounding Gloria's trip and fall accidents so he would receive the insurance settlement as part of the lawsuit against him by Nautilus Insurance Co. Alex's lawyers wrote in a legal filing no dogs were involved in the fall of Gloria Satterfield on February 2nd, 2018, and that Alex invented Ms. Satterfield's purported statement that dogs caused her to fall to force his insurers to make a settlement payment. Best case scenario here. Even if it was an accident, immediately following her death, Alec or Maggie or both see dollar signs. Instead of mourning her death at all, they just see an opportunity to make money. May 24th, 
Justice Department announces a new 22-count indictment against Alec for financial fraud and money laundering. More charges. His lawyer said he was cooperating and that they anticipate that the charges brought today will be quickly resolved without a trial. The indictment alleged that Alec conspired with the former CEO of Palmetto State Bank in Hampton, Russell Lafitte, to commit wire fraud and bank fraud. Indictment also alleged that Alec conspired with personal injury attorney, Corey Fleming, to defraud the estate of Gloria Satterfield and put almost $3.5 million into the Forge account for his personal enrichment, which we already you know, went over details of that. Lafitte indicted July 22nd and August 17th by a federal grand jury, for bank fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud, and misapplication of bank funds. May 24th, Lafitte also indicted by the South Carolina State Grand Jury for aiding Alec and stealing from personal injury clients. July 16th, the Beach family lawsuit is settled uh, before it goes to trial for $15 million. The Murdoch estate continues to crumble. August, 20, uh, August 2nd, 2023, Alec's scam buddy, former CEO of Palmetto State Bank, uh, Russell Lafitte, sentenced to seven years in federal prison for conspiracy, wire fraud, bank fraud, misapplying bank funds. Another low country good old boy, big wig, taken down in this mess. And I love it. August 15th, Alex's friend and fellow scammer, Corey Fleming, sentenced to 46 months in federal prison and three years of supervised release. And he's still facing additional state charges, including breach of trust, money laundering, and computer crimes. So he'll probably get some more years in prison. Uh, September 5th, Alex's lawyers filed a motion seeking a new trial. They allege that Colleton County Clerk of Court Rebecca Hill tampered with the jury by advising them not to believe Murdoch's testimony and other evidence presented by the defense, pressuring them to reach a quick guilty verdict, even misrepresenting critical and material information to the trial judge in her campaign to remove a juror she believed to be favorable to the defense. At a news conference, Dick Harputlian said they collected sworn testimony from two jurors and interviewed a third. They claimed that they learned that Rebecca Hill had improper private communications with some jurors outside court. Motion claims that Hill invented a story about a Facebook post to have one juror removed because she believed the juror would have found Alec not guilty. Uh, Hill co-authored Behind the Doors of Justice, the Murdoch Murders, which was published in July. Uh, Hill denied all these allegations to the Hampton County Guardian and her co-author, Neil Gordon. He's appeared on Court TV and some podcasts and uh, sent a statement to the Hampton County Guardian. And he said that Becky is a soft-spoken person. He never saw her raise her voice or pressure anyone to do anything. Also said they chose to self-publish the book and never got a book deal. Also didn't even meet to discuss the book until after the trial. Hill spoke to a media attorney and the South Carolina Ethics Commission before she even wrote it. So Alex's team apparently uh, appears to be just groping straws here. This motherfucker can delude himself all he wants. He will die in prison, even if he got uh, an appeal. Even if he was not found guilty of the murders, all the financial charges will leave him in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, September 21st, 2023, Alec Murdoch pleads guilty to 22 federal counts of financial fraud, money laundering. Uh, is required to pay restitution to each victim. Again, his estate continues to crumble. Soon there'll be nothing left, I imagine. He may be subject to a polygraph and could be called to testify at future proceedings. In exchange for his guilty plea, his sentence will run consecutive to state sentences. Alex said in court, I want my son to see me take responsibility. I hope the people I've hurt can get healed. Well, I mean, not, you know, Maggie and Paul, it's going to be hard to heal them. Uh, he has not yet been sentenced for his federal financial crimes. November 17th, Alec pleads guilty to over a dozen financial crimes in state court, including money laundering, breach of trust, financial fraud. Sentencing hearing scheduled for November 28th. Alec will receive a 27-year sentence, and 23 of those 27 years must be served. That alone will keep the 55-year-old in prison until he's at least 78. And then there are still the two life terms, obviously, for the murders. And still needs to be sentenced for a variety of, you know, financial, uh, federal financial crimes 
and he'll, he'll never leave prison alive. He would have to win so many fucking appeals, so many different crimes. There's ironclad proof of his guilt for most of these crimes. Uh, he reached the plea deal on the day of his hearing to possibly reschedule the trial. Alex said in court, I'm happy to be pleading guilty to these charges for a number of reasons. Jim Griffin said after the hearing, he feels very comfortable doing prison time for crimes he committed. He does not feel comfortable doing prison time for the murders of his wife and son, which he did not do. And that will take us out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So what a downward spiral, huh? Alec Murdoch had so fucking much. He was born into immense opportunity. So much wealth, big old silver spoon handed to him in the womb. Had a seven-figure-a-year job just sitting there, waiting for him to claim it. Just had to go to college, all paid for, uh, of course, by the fam. Then law school, also paid for, then passed the bar. Didn't need to get A's. Didn't need to work two jobs to put himself through school. No scholarship to show up and pass. Family firm, waiting for you when you're ready. A big-time attorney job. Waiting for you where you'll make a lot of money out the gates. You don't even have to be a good lawyer to get it. No one else is going to apply for this job. Since his arrest, uh, I mentioned this earlier, so many peers have come out and said he was a fucking terrible student of the law. Was not a good lawyer. Just gifted with the art of bullshit. Knew how to talk people into taking shitty deals. Right? Talk other people into giving these deals. Deals that were very often very shady. He was taught by his dad how to do it. His grandpa. Uh, he had a beautiful wife, uh, loving wife, by all accounts, had two sons that, you know, he should have been a much better parent to, but they did seem to love him and you know, uh, you know, and he loved them as strange as that may sound for somebody who fucking killed one of them, but it all wasn't enough, right? Opioids. I don't want to give him a pass and I won't, but my God, what a terrible destructive drug. Uh, opioids dug their claws into his already incredibly entitled, arrogant, spoiled, probably pretty rotten brain. And they turned to selfish, spoiled, born on third, thought he hit a triple motherfucker, somebody already used to bend or break in the law, some sociopath already used to living above the law into a true murderous monster who only cared about himself, someone willing to do anything to anyone to keep himself on the, on the Murdoch low country throne, right? Ultimate case of a big fish in a very small pond and a case of power corrupts. In the low country, the Murdochs, they had too much power for too long. And it was turning them into some small town version of the Lannisters and their own coastal, rural South Carolina version of Game of Thrones. One where one family held a shitty throne for the entirety of its existence. I found some of Alex's scams almost as disgusting as the murders of his wife and son. One I didn't mention, and there's so many. One I didn't mention was another case of settling the clients, you know, a case for a large sum of money, then failing to tell them about getting that settlement money and just keeping it. Pamela Pickney hired Murdoch after a car wreck in 2009. She was driving on Interstate 95 in South Carolina's coastal low country, headed to family do dollar for milk when her SUV swerved uncontrollably, flipped over multiple times, left her with two broken ankles, broken bones in her knee, thigh, shoulder, and neck. Her 19-year-old son, Hakeem, a student athlete for the South Carolina School of the Deaf and Blind, where he was a linebacker, got thrown out, landed on his head, ended up being paralyzed, quadriplegic. He was already almost entirely deaf. Alec got Pam an unknown amount of money in the lawsuit. Her son would then slip into a coma a few years later thanks to lingering injuries and mistakes by a medical care provider. Is now brain dead. Then Murdoch gets Pam another settlement from Hakeem's care provider. And she thought everything was great. She got a little bit of money. To her, it was a lot. And then she learned the truth following his arrest. Both times, he didn't tell her how much she had really won. Both times, he kept most of the money for himself over a million dollars. 
and he used some of that money to fly him and some buddies to the College World Series on a private jet. Uh, he put a bunch of cash into his checking account, wrote a bunch of checks to associates and family members. How many of those checks were fucking bribes to make sure he could keep doing as he pleased? Dude robbed a deaf quadriplegic of his settlement money fucking twice. That is a true scumbag. Uh, I weirdly related a fair amount to this story as far as where it was set. As someone who grew up largely in Idaho County, 17,000 people in an area of 8,500 square miles. Uh, I'm familiar with the big fish, small pond mentality. Nothing in Idaho County to the Murdoch extreme. But I get some of the elements of this story, like local police being afraid to stand up to this family. Right? Even in Riggins, the the cops, or cop singular, (laughs) there was never more than one cop station in town as far as I can remember. Seriously. Definitely let locals get away with a lot more shit than outsiders. Which does make sense. Right, If you are a cop in a city of a million people or 100,000 people, there's a good chance you're not going to see somebody again that you've pulled over or arrested. Or at least odds are you're going to see them briefly in passing. Right, Very good odds. You run in different circles. If you respond to a domestic violence call, you probably don't know the person. But in a twin town area, about 5,000 people, you fucking know them. They know you. And you will see them all the damn time, maybe for the rest of your life. You're going to eat at the same few restaurants. You're going to drink at the same few bars. And you know not only them, but if they've lived in the area for generations, you know their family, you know their parents, children, cousins, et cetera, and vice versa. They know your family. Lives are very interconnected in small towns in ways they are not in cities. Outside of maybe kind of old ethnic neighborhoods where a variety of families have all been living there for generations, but even in those neighborhoods, most of those families probably spend a lot of their time outside the neighborhood, right? For work, various social activities, and a little town, a little isolated town like Hampton. Everyone shares the same few churches, goes to the same few stores, sits at the same few coffee shops, has the same fucking doctors, use the same lawyers, etc. Everyone's dating the same people, going to the same high school football games, cheering for the same team. Things are so connected that just puts a very different kind of social pressure on you that you do not experience in a bigger town. If you're a cop there, right, you have one of the few good jobs in the area. You're not disposing medical waste. You're not grinding tires. You got solid benefits, a decent wage, a pension to look forward to, hopefully promotions to look forward to. But if you piss off Murdoch, they just might figure out a way to get some leverage on you. Make sure you don't get that promotion. Make sure you maybe get fired. Maybe run you out of town when no one else will hire you, right? There aren't that many jobs. Once you're blacklisted, you really can't do much besides leave or just barely subsist there and be a fucking social pariah, you could try and sue, but what lawyers uh, around there are going to want to take on the biggest, most litigious game in town, right? Where they know everyone. They're just connected, uh, you know, they're connected to all the judges, etc. I wonder, had national media attention not focused on the dirty deeds of this fucked up family, would Alec have still gotten away, or would he, excuse me, not still, he didn't, would he have gotten away with everything? And as crazy as it sounds, I think he might have. Had the media not latched onto the story, had it stayed quiet, he might have been able to bribe the people he needed to bribe, have them look the other way, be seen as a poor victim of vigilantes rather than somebody who killed his wife and son. He might be sitting on a big pile of fucking settlement cash from their deaths that he caused. Luckily, that did not happen. Luckily, after a long run, too long of a run, the Murdoch reign on the low country has come to an end. Maybe that whole law firm will go under next. One can hope. If it all came crashing down, maybe more industry would come to a really beautiful part of the country. Put more money into the pockets of all the people fucked over by the Murdochs and their parasitic ways. Also, since this is all so fresh, what skeletons 
are still going to pour out of the Murdoch closet. Maybe enough for a follow-up story someday, but I hope not. Based on what we already know, Alec has already hurt far too many people in too many ways. I hope this story has, outside of a few more financial crime verdicts and two possibly unsolved murders, finally come to an end. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Murdoch family were elected solicitors in South Carolina's 14th Judicial Circuit for 86 straight years, from 1920 to 2006, outside of a few months in the 50s. And then Alec was a volunteer solicitor for another 15 years until 2021. Over 100 years of prosecutorial presence in South Carolina's low country. And then everything really came crashing down. Number two, on February 24, 2019, Paul, Papa, Timmy Murdoch was driving a boat under the influence when he caused the boat to crash into a bridge, throwing two of his passengers into the water. The crash killed one of them, 19-year-old Mallory Beach. And had Paul not been murdered by his father over two years later, I'm guessing he would have gotten away with that, just like he got away with everything else. Number three, Maggie and Paul Murdoch shot multiple times at the family's Moselle estate, June 7th, 2021. Both of them shot in the head, but with different guns. This led Alex's defense to suggest a two-shooter theory, uh, while the prosecution argued that Alec was solely responsible for the murders. Murder weapons have never been found, but shell casings matching the guns were found on the family's property. And the family owned both the shotgun used and a 300 blackout rifle, the type of weapons used in the murders, and those guns mysteriously went missing. Number four, two additional deaths have been associated with the Murdoch family. Although any suggestions that they, you know, were involved, currently just speculation. 2015, 19-year-old Stephen Smith found dead in the middle of a remote road. From the beginning, investigators thought his death was suspicious, even though it was weirdly declared a hit and run. People who knew Stephen suggested that Buster Murdoch should be interviewed. There were rumors, many rumors, the two were in a secret relationship. Second death is that of family housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. Alex said that Gloria tripped over the family dogs, but it's been rumored that someone in the family may have had motive to push her because she discovered some of Alex's drugs shortly before her death. Alex reached out to Gloria's sons, offered to help them file a suit against himself so they could receive a payout, also filed a separate claim with his insurance company, and in total, he received $4.3 million for the death of Gloria and didn't give a cent to her kids. And number five, new info. The Murdoch murders turned to very little, uh, very, you know, not well-known. Low country journalist Mandy Matney mentioned her earlier into one of the world's biggest podcasters. In February of 2019, Mandy was working as the breaking news editor for the 16,000 Circulation Island Packet and was all over the story of Paul Murdoch's boat crash even though the packet's executive editors wanted her to let it go. She said, I'll never forget being in, in a meeting in March, 2019. My boss saying, I'm sick of the boat crash stories. And what was crazy about that was the boat crash stories were bringing in way more page views than anything else. At the time, Matney thought that maybe her editor's lack of interest in pursuing the Murdoch boat manslaughter fiasco was largely due to the paper's business model of generally chasing more low click or low effort clicks. But now she wonders if the powerful Murdoch family tried to shut her up after a demotion, even though she was, uh, you know, the, the reporter getting, or the journalist getting the most page views, she gets demoted to reporter in 2019 for continuing to chase the Murdoch family's crimes in print, uh, against the editor's wishes, even though she led the paper and page views with 200,000 monthly, you know, average views. Matney now considered giving into her bosses, leaving the Murdoch story behind, but she didn't. And now she's so glad she didn't. January of 2020, she took a job at a rival small, small South Carolina news source, mentioned them earlier, fitznews.com, one that gave her free reign to pursue what she found worthy of pursuing. 
which was largely the Murdochs. Matney was then the first to publish the Department of Natural Resources case file that provided the most complete picture of the events surrounding the boat crash. Like her investigative journalism did a lot to bring this guy down. She was the first to report the reopening of the Satterfield death investigation and the family's claims of insurance fraud, which led to yet another news break on 27 new charges against Alec. She continually reported on the unsolved death of Stephen Smith, didn't shy away from the fact that the Murdochs, rumored to be involved, helped get that investigation reopened. With Matney leading on the Murdoch beat, Fit News grew into a robust 1.5 million monthly visitors. Still, Matney felt there was more story to tell, and she launched a podcast called The Murdoch Murders. This is crazy. June 22nd, 2021, the first episode debuted with zero fanfare. She didn't even have cover art. She recorded the first episodes with very cheap equipment at her kitchen table. Sounds familiar. Then, and this is unprecedented, by her ninth episode, her completely unknown podcast had now grown into the most listened to podcast in all of America. That's fucking unreal. It ended the year as the most listened to podcast in the world. Then it surged again in 2023, becoming the world's second most listened to podcast. She has since uh, uh, launched a, a media company. She's changed the name of the podcast to True Sunlight, a podcast dedicated to investigative journalism focused on shining the light on crime and corruption wherever it appears. Well done, Mandy. Well done. Hail Nimrod to you. That is incredible. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right. The Murdoch murders rise and fall of a low country dynasty has been sucked. Uh, thank you to the Queen of Bad Magic and the rest of the team here, including Suck Ranger, Tyler C., recording this show. Olivia Lee, again, providing the initial research. Uh, thanks to the Space Lizards on Patreon for supporting this show. Thanks to all the, uh, thanks to the All Seen Eyes, moderating the Cult the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure the Time Suck Discord channel stays fun, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. And now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. First up, some some silliness. Robbie Cochran, masterclass language expert, writes in with a subject line of Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti (laughs) to point out how I've been making a damn fool of myself. He writes, Dan, I was turned on to your podcast by a close friend of mine earlier this year, and I've been hooked ever since. I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan, and previously his podcast was where I spent most of my listening. But I've heard of him. (laughs) But I've since began to alternate between him and you. Consider yourself in great company. Uh, One thing that you do, though, which makes me cringe every time, is your Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti trend. (laughs) But not for any of the reasons you most likely suspect. What, like my shitty accent? Uh, Bugatti is not currently, nor have they ever been, an Italian company. (laughs) They're a French brand with German roots. May I suggest that you replace Bugatti with Ducati? That's a great suggestion. Otherwise, I fear that your podcast may result in an embolism or two. And we already know that you're on an FBI watch list. So we wouldn't want to give them any additional evidence to stack against you. Either way, <laughs> keep on sucking. I do pray to Lucifina that I do not suffer from an embolism from, uh, that was caused by you. Thanks for your entertainment, Robbie in California. Fuck, damn it, Robbie! You know, uh, I knew, or I have known that Antonio Banderas is a Spanish name. Th- that was for absurdity in my Italian masterclass. <laughs> but I- I'm going to admit, I have thought this entire time that Bugatti was Italian. <laughs> You're right, though. I looked into it. Yeah, checks out. French company with its... With a German, German roots, yeah. Fuck. So let me, let me see if, if my little, um, he, for, he's a jo- for he's a jolly good fellow works with Ducati. Maserati Ducati spaghetti, Maserati Ducati spaghetti, Maserati Ducati spaghetti, Luigi pizza pie. I think that still plays. 
I'll probably forget and go back to Bucati. <laughs> but at least I got it right this time. Uh, appreciate your dedication to Italian culture. Uh, update from a wise sack now. Oh my gosh. Uh, Scott doesn't want his uh, last name revealed. Uh, writing in with the subject line of got me through. This is great. Uh, they write, hey, Suckmaster, my name is Scott. I stumbled upon your podcast years ago. You were on the Pat McAfee show. My wife, who was pregnant at the time, and I went and saw you at the Helium Comedy Club in Indy. I've tried to get her to listen to the podcast, but sometimes it's too much for her. <laughs> I get it, but oh well. Anyways, I was letting you know, I thank you for getting me through these long last four years of my life. I got a job at the company I thought I always wanted to work for. Well, the saying, never meet your heroes rings true. I started to hate my eight to five office job at the company. I would come home not happy about my job at all. My wife noticed this, and one day we began to talk. My wife, who was pregnant at the time, told me to pursue what I always wanted to do, which was teach history. I always wanted to teach, but a teacher in high school scared me out of teaching because he said a friend of his was a history teacher and worked at a rent center because he couldn't find a job. Something in my head kept telling me that when my son is born, I want to be proud to tell him what I do for kids and how I really try to help kids. An office job just you know, wasn't something I feel like I could be proud of. Finally, with a pregnant wife and that full-time job, I went back to school. I did online courses for three and a half years, all while, my, all while maintaining that work, school, husband, and new dad life. Man, good for you. Then finally, the spring of 2023, I graduated with my degree. I never had gotten a college degree because I really struggled in trying college early out of high school. I had never been more proud of myself, and I'm not a person to boast. But keeping the balance was a struggle, but I did it. Thanks to all the people around me. Well, at the end of this year, I'm teaching history at a middle school, and I love my job. Couldn't be more proud of what I do. Long update, but I don't apologize. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. You can use this on the podcast. Just don't use my last name, please. Just use Scott. Thanks, Dan, for everything you've done. P.S. My wife is pregnant with our second child. Wow. Well, congrats, Scott. Uh, Very inspiring. Way to grind extra hard for three and a half hours so that you don't have to keep grinding forever. Way to keep working uh, that full-time job while studying on the side so you can keep providing for the fam. Also follow your passion. Very responsible. I respect the shit out of it. Very practical, honorable way to chase your dreams. I hope you inspire a love of history for so many students. We are so much better off if we know the mistakes of our past, our collective past, and what we should try and avoid going forward. And uh, enjoy those two, uh, two little nuggets. And now ending on a big one. This is an epic update. This is a ride. Holy shit. It's, this is a roller coaster ride. From an anonymous teacher who, who I very nearly got fired recently. Subject line of nipple piercing mount for adult keychains. <laughs> and they send in dear times like team. I hope the subject line was enough to get your attention without being flagged for spam because I have quite the tale for you today. I've been waiting for a few weeks for this event to blow over <laughs> to make sure that it was a funny story, not a tragic one before I wrote in. Oh, this is so good. It, either way, I'd like to remain anonymous just in case. With that said, a bit of backstory. I'm a middle school English teacher working in a small community in Texas. I usually listen to time suck on my way to work and have been very behind on episodes as I don't commute much during the summer. As part of my class's regular routine, I often give them a brain break halfway through the lesson to rest and recharge before we finish with our learning for the day. During that time, I'll play music over a Bluetooth speaker system, usually student-recommended songs and sometimes random ones. And yes, I played uh, Triple M for them. Awesome. I've never been worried about Cummins Law with my students because my phone would always automatically start playing music on Spotify when I connect to any kind of playback device as long as I'm not already actively playing something else, which I never do during class. Then I got a new phone. A few weeks ago, <laughs> I was listening to the Dennis Nielsen episode. Yeah, the UK's Jeffrey Dahmer. As I shut off my car when I got to work, you were just starting on one of your classic rants. And I thought to myself, what a terrible time for someone to listen in without context. 
To be fair, I think that to myself about 14 times per episode. So I thought nothing of it and went to class. Imagine my horror when I connected to the class speaker to play music and my new phone immediately resumed time suck right as you began shouting in your god-awful Scottish accent, stick your hard penis in my butthole. (laughs) Please do, but please don't. Or you could lube it all nice and good and hammer away in my bumhole when I'm out and come in my sleep. Because I would be still be asleep for that. And I would never know you did it. And it would be our secret. And I'll never tell anyone. You can do whatever you like. And yes, I had to re-listen to that segment 30 times. And relive my trauma so I could get that quote right. I can't remember exactly how long it was playing because I might have blacked out for a moment. In my panic, I, d- I didn't just open up my podcast player and stop it. I instead ran across the room to my desk, unlocked the tech cabinet, unplugged the entire speaker system. I think I stopped at milliseconds before you laughed about how ridiculous that would be, (laughs) which honestly probably would have been better because at least my students would have known it was just a joke, not some kind of low-budget gay porno, although that scripting would have actually been pretty much on par with any real porno, so maybe they thought you were starring in a high-end gay porno. Anyway, my students went berserk, screaming about what on God's green earth were we listening to, and that this was really, and was this really school appropriate? I just awkwardly laughed and said something like, I'll have to check who keeps accidentally connecting to our sound system <laughs> to give you an idea of how just how horrified I was only a week or so prior to that. A parent called to complain to the principal because I had said, quote, a buttload of crap in class referring to 19th century eugenics research. They claim to prove how black people are inherently inferior because of a cheekbone placement. But by the way, the parent was upset about the courses of my language, not that I was criticizing eugenics. It's a conservative community, but thankfully not that conservative. This meant that I was almost certain your uh, porno performance would get me reported and come back to bite me, right? They they hate the language there. Sure enough, the next day, my principal pays me a visit. I'm lucky enough to be at a school with an administration group that advocates for teachers. I explained the situation, had to play the clip so he would believe me, and he thought it was hilarious. He said something along the lines of, Mr. Redacted, I'm not going to get you in trouble, but be prepared for this parent to make a big stink about it. Well, the next day, a rep from the district did a surprise observation in my classroom. Next week, I was invited to meet with the associate superintendent who informed me that the parent was trying to get me fired under the grounds that anyone who listened to such degenerate material was unfit to supervise children. (laughs) Shortly after I heard that the parent, uh, I heard the parent complaint uh, had sparked a district-wide inquiry into the content taught in English classes. Fortunately, the district folks realized the parent was just having a Karen moment and did it quickly just to satisfy the parent and didn't allow it to go public. I can't imagine what might have happened if Fox News got a hold of the story. I can read the headlines now. Texas teacher exposed underage students to sexual content as part of lesson. That would have been a pretty good advertisement for Time Suck. Not gonna lie to you. Anyway, now that the whole thing is blown over, I hope I can laugh about it and hope you and the Suckverse can have a good laugh as well. Oh, yes. If not, my embarrassment would all be for nothing. With that out of the way, I hope I can ride the coattails of my Cummins Law to add some additional thoughts to an already lengthy message. Now that I think about it, though, this will still take you less than 10 minutes to read and you subject us to two and a half hours of absurdity every week, so I won't apologize for length. I was delighted to have a Shakespeare episode and an Emmett Till episode back-to-back recently, as I had literally just finished a Shakespeare unit with my students and had begun a unit on the novel Mississippi Trial, 1955, which is a story based on the Emmett Till murder. It was fun to get to learn about new things about those topics along with my students. I knew some of the material from teaching, 
but I hadn't known Carolyn Bryant later recanted her testimony about Emmett grabbing her in the store. I always use a lot of details from the trial in that unit. I'll absolutely include that now as well. It's a powerful book and almost always my students' favorite that we read. Even though it's a horrible event, I'm glad it can be used for positive change today. Speaking of which, thank you for your mission with Time Suck and Bad Magic. My personal mission as a teacher is to teach my students critical thinking skills and equip them to uncover truth in a world often overwhelmed by misinformation. Oh my God, is it? I want them to be empathetic and productive members of society. I love that you've created a culture around this podcast that focuses on solid research, critical thinking, and spreading knowledge. That is exactly what I try to stand for, and I love knowing there's a group of people out there working for the same things. It lifts me up when I experience short-sighted parents and politicians who try to censor books and history because it makes them uncomfortable or it doesn't align with their personal and political views. Especially in a conservative community, I've seen amazing teachers get pushed out of their careers because they have a pride flag on their desk or allow a student to write an essay about atheism. Both true stories. I slog through the bureaucracy and in humanely low budgets and low pay because I want students to build a habit of lifelong learning and avoid mindless prejudice or conspiracies. A lot of my students and their parents are fans of people like Andrew Tate. Fucking hate that guy. And Alex Jones. Also fucking hate that guy. And I have to work so hard to get them to even acknowledge that hating other people can be dangerous. Okay, kind of ironic that I just said hate. <laughs> but okay. Anyway, I, uh, I don't want this to be a pity party for me and the U.S. education system. I just want you to know I appreciate what you do and the opportunities you give us to learn and change our opinions and have open discourse. It's a beautiful thing. One final thing before I stop the ramblings of a madman, one of my favorite things is Banned Books Week. I love that you talk, talked about access to information in the Library of Alexandria episode. Every year during Banned Books Week, I share with my students my favorite books from the American Library Association's list of most banned and challenged books in the country. If you could give a shout out to bannedbooksweek.org, and encourage the Suckfirst to celebrate now or during the official event next year in September of 2024 by reading books that people try to hide, I would be so happy. They have tons of lists of books of all lengths and genres, so with enough digging, there's something for everyone. I haven't read them all, but all the ones I've read are just good stories that can put us in someone else's shoes to learn from their experiences. I know this is a long message, but it's been about five years coming. If it's too long to read on the podcast, you can just skip the last half and share the Cummins Law for a laugh. Thanks again for this great show. I've been saving up for a house, then a master's degree program, so I haven't been able to afford to be a space lizard yet. But I hope someday to get caught up on all the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans you get up to there as well. Special shout-out to Sophie and Olivia for their amazing work doing research behind the scenes. In my opinion, they are the true heroes of the suck and prepping so many great sources and insane info. I use the sources in show notes a lot, in the show notes a lot, sometimes even to teach lessons. And I know many of those are likely found by those fabulous researchers keep on sucking (laughs) <laughs> pretty funny the edit this Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti anonymous degenerate and middle school teacher well holy shit that was some message uh, love that you happened to to add Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti uh, there uh, yes Sophie and Olivia have been lifesavers uh, we've developed a good mind meld on research uh, approach and it gives me a lot of comfort to start off every subject with a base layer of research that I know I can trust and it's not easy to do that and that info uh, you know that I add is then icing on an already pretty damn good cake And thank you for being you. We need more teachers like you, teachers who care about history, who aren't afraid of tackling tough topics truthfully. And I love this community for embracing that ethos and making me feel less alone as well. So keep fighting the good fight. Good luck with the house. Good luck with the masters. Keep pushing truth on everybody you can. Be careful with your Bluetooth. Holy shit, that was incredible. Glad you didn't get fired. And fuck that Karen. Fuck them in their tight, narrow-minded, silly little butthole with minimal loop. Hail. Nimrod. 
suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death and time... Scared to death? Scared to death? Scared to death. And time suck each week. Uh, please don't kill your wife and son to keep your financial crimes, uh, you know, hidden this week, meat sacks. Just, just confess. Just go to prison for a few years. Where you'll have so much time to turn your life around and keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. And now one more time. One more time for the road. But we didn't have a clue that that girl was in that house. She said, please help me get out. Dead giveaway. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. You're welcome. You might hate that it's stuck in your head, but also kind of love that it's stuck in your head because it's so fucking catchy. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.